This westerling betrayal did not seem to have enraged his father as much as Tyrion would have expected. Lord Tywin did not suffer disloyalty in his vassals. He had extinguished the proud reigns of Castamere and the ancient Tarbecks of Tarbeck Hall root and branch when he was still half a boy. The singers had even made a rather gloomy song of it. Some years later, when Lord Farman of Faircastle grew truculent, Lord Tywin sent an envoy bearing a lute instead of a letter. But once he'd heard the reins of Castamere echoing through his hall, Lord Farman gave no further trouble. And if the song were not enough, the shattered castles of the reins and Tarbecks still stood as mute testimony to the fate that awaited those who chose to scorn the power of Casterly Rock. The crag is not so far from Tarbeck Hall and Castamere, Tyrion pointed out. You'd think the Westerlings might have ridden past and seen the lesson there. Mayhaps they have, Lord Tywin said. They are well aware of Castamere, I promise you. Hello and welcome, my fellow Westorians, to another History of Westeros podcast. That opening quote was the first mention of Houses Rain and Tarbeck. It's ominous for them that they are brought up in the context of the Red Wedding, but hey, you know what happened to them? Well, you know the broad strokes of what happened to them. Here today we are to delve into the details, the thorough take of what happened in those years. It's a span of about 28 years. The time frame is 233 to 261. The majority of it is in that last 10-year period. That's when most of it happens. But we're building on what we talked about in our last episode, the Peak Uprising. A lot of the characters that are going to be featured today are parents or brothers or sisters or aunts or uncles. They're related to the characters here. They have a big role in getting it started. Another big part of this is the Extended Westerlands chapter. In the mid-roll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, uh, the meta behind that that extended Westerlands chapter. We have some fun stories to tell with that, but it's got a lot more in it than the regular version of the chapter in the World of Ice and Fire. And since we're starting the World of Ice and Fire for Val Arboretus in just a few weeks, we thought we'd kick it off with a extended version, uh, so to speak, with an event that is pretty recent in history. As I said, it, it goes up to about 261 and right now in the books, we're around in the year 301. So this oh, this ended only about 40 years ago from where we are now. And almost every A Song of Ice and Fire quote with rain has Tarbeck. So you know they're linked together because of this story inextricably. And most of the quotes in this story or in this episode, and we do have a lot, a lot of quotes in this one. A lot of them are from Jamie, although they're more about who he's talking to. Uh, he's sort of the the receiver in these situations. There's a few from Tyrion. Interestingly, none from Cersei. It doesn't come up in Cersei's chapters at all. Maybe it will later, but to this point it hasn't. I thought that was notable. And it does come up once in a Davos chapter, kind of casually mentioned by Lord Wyman Manderly, like, well, this is what'll happen to me if I don't comply. They'll go all reigns of Castamere on me. So you can understand why he was wary of upsetting Lord Tywin. And that of course, is the point. Tywin knew that this would last, that people would remember what he did and it would affect their view of him. And that is a big topic for us today because, of course, the reigns of Castamere, or the reigns and Tarbex loom over Tywin's story and the Lannister story. 
And that is really interesting because in attempting or in succeeding to destroy them, what damage did he do to his own house, to his own reputation, and to the future of his own family? Because arguably, even though he destroyed his enemies, he made himself more vulnerable by reaching farther into this cycle of violence and pride and honor. Uh, he may have shown that the most successful versions of of this are actually also failures. So that's a pretty telling story. Let's tell the story. But first off, thanks to our patrons and anchor supporters and donators. We really appreciate the financial support. If you also want to leave a review on your favorite podcatcher, that does a lot. You might be surprised at how much the algorithms pick that up, how much word of mouth really matters. So take that step if you haven't. We'd appreciate it. Also, thanks to Nina, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com with one L in the alley. Check out her blog, full of excellent insights. She added a few notes to this one today, had some very good thoughts that helped me get through this. With this event, we're mostly looking at three houses. Of course, there's House Lannister, who is too big to cover in one episode. House Rain, of whom we know very little, and House Tarbeck, whom we know arguably even less. It's pretty close, though, because as I said at the beginning there, they're very linked. Most of the time you talk about one, you hear both. Most of the quotes, when you look up one, refer to the other. So we get to do some historical context work. Well, that's fun. There was much rejoicing. Yeah, I love when we get to do that, and I'm pretty sure you guys love that, too. As it turns out, we know more about their extinction and their existence, which is a bit of a shame since they existed for thousands of years each. To be fair, the series of events that led to these houses' ends was pretty interesting. And as I said, recent. So it's understandable that this is the thing that people remember because it's the most recent. Especially given that the guy who wiped them both out wasn't fond of people talking about them over much, though singing about them he found quite effective, though I needn't tell you Tywin Lannister never sang the song himself. That we know of. <laughs> that would be a surprise. Really? Get Tywin standing up there belting a song out? I just, hard well, to picture that. Imagine it's some pillow talk in bed, you know? <laughs> she's like, oh, sing me the song. Joanna hummed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tywin hummed it to Joanna one night, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Apart from the obvious outworld sources, the inworld sources are Maester Belden, who served at Casterly Rock for Lord Gerald the Golden and Lord Titos, and possibly Tywin. We don't actually know when Maester Belden passed and, and, and was replaced, but the man Maester Belden quotes most of all is Lord Toad, Casterly Rock's hunchbacked fool. And he's pretty funny. Um, at some point, he disappears from this narrative because he's supposedly aged when this all starts. So Lord Toad isn't there when it all ends, I think. But maybe that's uh, maybe that's a good thing because it ended pretty roughly. Then again, he was a fan of the Casually Rock side of things. So he might have been pretty happy with how it ended. Maybe he's the one that uh, started writing the song. You never know. Hmm. This whole thing has a lot of similarity uh, to the Dance with Dragons, including these sources, right? We have a combo of traditional sources and Mushroom the Fool for that. Here we have a maester and another fool, although in this case the fool isn't writing things down like Mushroom did. Still, he's a source. He's quoted. The parallels go a bit further than just that, too, in terms of comparing the dance to this. What do we call this? The Lament of the Lions? What did you call it? You had a nickname for it, right? Yeah, I called it a limbo of lions or a lap dance of <laughs> the lions. The lap dance of lions, yes. 
So there's the sigil-based symbolic parallels too, right? Lannister and Rain are both lion houses. But, you know, we were trying to pick out a name here, but really the Reigns of Castamere is a good name for it. We don't need another name, but, you know, more names is good. More names is better. It's nice. But we don't need it. So let's consider the lyrics to the song real quick. And who are you, the proud Lord said, that I must bow so low? Only a cat of a different coat. That's all the truth I know. Now, hang on a sec. What's interesting about this, as we'll see going through this, who is this Lord we're talking about? There isn't one Lord here that really stands out as the big talker. There's really the, the reigns as a group. And if it's anyone that stands out most, it's Lady Ellen. So it, it, maybe it should say, who are you? The proud lady said. <laughs> but hey, I didn't write the song and I don't get to decide the lyrics. In a coat of gold or coat of red, a lion still has claws, and mine are long and sharp, my lord, as long and sharp as yours. All the more reason to cite Lady Ellen as the lord, because that's her line. And mine are as long and sharp as yours, my lord. That's, we're going to get to that at some point here in this episode. That's her line. And of course, in a coat of gold or a coat of red, that refers to the colors of the sigil. The, the Lannisters are gold and crimson, uh, with a golden line with on crimson, and the... Reigns are a red line on silver. So you can kind of see how that works out. Silver is sort of like second place. They're the vassal house of sorts. And of course, the last line is, and so he spoke, and so he spoke, or and so she spoke. That Lord of Castamere, that lady of Tarbeck. <laughs> but now the reigns weep o'er his hall with no one there to hear. Yes, now the reigns weep o'er his hall and not assault here. Well, as we'll also see, the people inside certainly heard it. The people who died together, they all hurt each other. It's kind of morbid, though. We don't need to talk about that part. Let's go to history. Let's go farther back to start off with House Rain. Let's have a quote. Rich veins of gold and silver had made the reigns near as, wealth near as wealthy as the Lannisters during the Age of Heroes. To defend their riches, they had raised curtain walls about the entrance to their mine, closed it with an oak and iron gate, and flanked it with a pair of stout towers. Keeps and halls had followed, but all the while the mine shafts had gotten deeper and deeper, and when, at last, the gold gave out, they had been widened into halls and galleries and snug bedchambers, a warren of tunnels and a vast, echoing ballroom. To the ignorant eye, Castamere seemed a modest holding, a fit seat for a landed knight or small lord, but those who knew its secrets knew that nine-tenths of the castle was beneath the ground. That's pretty impressive. It should also remind you, especially since we're making Dance of the Dragons parallels, of the Valarians and the Targaryens, right? The Targaryens were number one. The Valarians were their number two for a long time. They worked together really well. And until the dance came, they mostly got along. And when the dance came, they got along quite poorly. And that's similar here because... The Lannisters became kings. King Lorian Lannister announced his kingship by marrying a daughter of House Rain during the Age of Heroes. It was that marriage that created this early kingdom. So it was a crucial step. It was an important part of that. The unity between these probably two most powerful houses in the West. Lannister, certainly the most powerful. Reigns probably were the second most powerful. Again, sort of like the Valarian to House Targaryen. Sort of the Royce to House Aaron, a bit like that. Maybe not Bolton to House Stark, since the Boltons were kind of at odds with the Starks for nearly the entire existence. So more like the Manderleys and the Starks, maybe not quite as hyper-loyal as we'll see. There's reasons to not be so loyal. 
It doesn't start off with that level of loyalist or loyalism, but, um, you know, these parallels are never one-to-one. Fast forward to far in, in the future past the Age of Heroes. We don't know very little about the uh, the reigns during that time. It seems like things just went pretty well. They worked with the Lannisters. The Lannisters ruled. And, yeah, there's not a lot to say. But when the Blackfire Rebellions came, which is another useful parallel that will that'll come up a few times during this episode sir rob rain fights for damon blackfire but the gray lion damon lannister that's gerald the golden's grandfather and tywin's great great grandfather that would be uh they fought for the loyalists so this would pit lannister versus rain now we're not sure if that's the first time they've been at odds probably not the first time in thousands of years but this might be the most significant split between them. Now, of course, a lot of other houses fought for Damon Blackfire. This was, you know, a huge civil war, as we've covered thoroughly elsewhere. But this does fall into that pattern we spoke of quite a bit during the Blackfire Rebellions, which is that a lot of second place houses took their shot at rising up and maybe taking that top spot away. Didn't work, obviously, but you can see how this fits into that. So it didn't happen. We don't really know what happened to Rob Rain. We don't even know for sure how much sway he had with his family. It's possible that some of the Reigns fought with the Loyalists, but we don't think so, because usually when we hear about a house fighting for both sides, that's notable and mentioned. In fact, that is what House Tarbeck did. So you'd think that the less famous House Tarbeck is mentioned fighting on both sides of the Blackfire Rebellion. You'd think that we would have heard that if it was true for the Reigns. Um, it's also possible, Nina suggests, that it was the Reigns who did the mining, or the minting of coins for Damon Blackfire, because we know he did that. We know he had coins minted. Well, if you're looking for who did that, yeah, well, we know it wasn't the Lannisters, so maybe the next wealthiest house in the West. And next wealthiest house in the West is probably one of the wealthiest houses in the entire realm because the Lannisters are the wealthiest, period. So if you're second to them, you might be second, period. They probably aren't, but they were, I'd rank them top five. Of course, this is was, not current. So it makes a lot of sense. The Manderleys were one of the main suppliers of silver in the north, and they're the ones who went to go mint the coins for Rob. That didn't actually happen, Rob Stark, but they planned on doing it uh, had Rob's kingdom <laughs> lasted longer. You know, that would have happened. What about the other Blackfire rebellions? We don't actually know um, where the reigns supported. We know they were on with the Loyalists in the fourth one, but we haven't gotten to the fourth one yet. This story kicks off just before that. So the third Blackfire Rebellion, of course, is the one that's left unexplained that a lot happened. But we doubt the Reigns supported the Blackfires this time. Having lost and having, you know, been set back down, not having the ability to rise the way they did before. It's a really risky to do it twice. As we saw, we have Bloodraven and his kind that are not very forgiving. So... Getting a second chance is difficult here. So we're, we're going to guess the Reigns probably stayed loyal the second time through. So let's fast forward to who was around just before the fourth Blackfire Rebellion, which is the storming of Starpike, where we talked about this in our last episode. We had a lot of these important Reign characters. Lord Robert Reign. Let's talk about him for a second. 
He has Roger, Ellen, and Reynard. Those are his three children in that order. Ellen, as I said, is the most important of them, but all three of them play a big role. It's a bit of a Jamie Cersei Tyrion vibe here. Uh, Jamie, of course, is an implacable, unbelievably talented warrior. Roger, pretty similar. Probably the greatest fighter of his era, at least in the West, and uh, acted like it. <laughs> Cocky. Uh, proud, all that. Maybe not as proud as, probably prouder than Jamie because he's an actual lord. But hey, you know, again, parallels aren't perfect. Ellen and Cersei, there's a lot to go there. Um, lots of parallels there. You'll see a lot of them as we go through this episode. But just to start off, ambitious, powerful, outspoken, aggressive, ruthless. Yeah, you name it. <laughs> Even right down to using some of the same or at least similar tricks. Uh, while in power, like not actually lying about a baby, but almost lying about a baby. Pretty similar, you know, <laughs> Cersei did it three times. Ellen tried to do it. And Reynard is the clever, cunning one. Uh, so Tyrion being the youngest of their three, he's the best talker of the three, the most uh, diplomatic when he needs to be. And that's Reynard. Reynard's the guy that when they need diplomacy, when they need negotiations, he's the one that they send. So that's, uh, yeah, a little bit of a uh, little bit of one, two, three there. Now, Robert Rain betroths Ellen to Tywald and himself takes Tywald as squire. That Tywald is the elder of the two Lannister twins, Tywald and Teon, that uh, have all that to do during the peak uprising. Now, Jamie, if House Rain was still around now, he would have probably squired with them or they would have squired with him. You know, he would have taken Rain Squires. That would have been a normal back and forth relationship until only recently. And he squired with Craycall instead uh, because there's no Reigns to squire with. But that's probably what happened. Also worth noting while we're talking about their sigil, uh, before we move on, Nina points out there the red line with a forked tail is a reversed version of the arms of Simon de Montfort, who was a 13th century English nobleman. Uh, though he has a French name because, <laughs> hey, England and France were, were very much one back then. Although during his time, that became less true. And uh, it's part of why he was in rebellion. It's a really, really interesting story. Simon de Montfort is uh, part of the reason the Magna Carta exists. And he was a really successful rebel. He's, there's a little Damon Blackfire in him, too. Very worth reading more on, but not something we have time for here. A little bit about House Tarbeck. Very little, because we don't have much to say about them. There isn't uh, a lot about their history. We don't even know if they were First Man or Andal House. I definitely lean towards Andal House, because their sigil is the seven-pointed star. Um, I mean, right? <laughs> now, we know that sigils came around after the First Men had been around for a while, so a lot of First Men houses did adopt the seven, but really, with something this over the top, I would guess, Andal. And as, as I said, they supported both sides during the first Blackfire Rebellion. The Tarbecks were among the families that Eustace Osgray mentioned as having married Osgray. So they're pretty big. You know, they're they're famous house. Even though the Reigns really take the bulk of the story here, they're the, they get the name in the song. They're also a lion. The Tarbecks are kind of third fiddle. But really, that's just kind of the way it fell out in terms of the story. They They aren't third fiddle because second fiddle? Yeah, second fiddle is the phrase. What am I doing here? <laughs> Third wheel. I can, <laughs> I'm mixing up my little metaphors here. So 
they were really powerful, though, is the point, just because they weren't quite as powerful as the others. It wasn't like way, way less powerful. Now, they were among the most powerful houses in the West as well. As for House Lannister, still setting the stage, Lord Damon Lannister, that's the Grey Lion. He was defeated by Fireball during the first Black Fire Rebellion, so that's kind of a famous loss uh, in to, to frame in conjunction with Rob Rain fighting for Damon Blackfire. Now, the Grey Lion dies in 210, so 14, 15 years after the Blackfire Rebellion, he dies of, in the Great Spring Sickness, which took a lot of people. Tybalt Lannister ascends. There's so many Ty Lannisters, right? But he's only around for two years anyway. You don't need to remember him. He dies mysteriously. He's Gerald's older brother. Tybalt's daughter takes over. That's Gerald's niece, uh, Sorel. And she dies mysteriously. So people kind of think Gerald did this, and he probably did. But despite that, he ruled really well uh, for most of the time. Um, yeah, he was scummy before he took over, and uh, a pretty good ruler afterwards. But maybe not a great husband. We're not sure about this. He married Rohan of um, Rohan Weber. She vanishes the year after Jason Lannister is born. That's uh, Titus's final brother. There were four um, of that generation. And then we come to the peak uprising that we talked about. Tywall dies. Ellen convinces Tion to give up his betrothal to Lord Rowan's daughter and marry her instead. That's a really big deal. Tien was betrothed to a Rowan. Rowans are a really big house, right? We talk about how they're, uh, quite a bit about how they're probably poised to be pretty important in the dance, uh, or rather in the Winds of Winter and going forward. The Rowans are not particularly fans of Tywin Lannister either. But they played along because, you know, they had to. Tywin's that way. So remember, Rohan Weber is Lady of Coldmoat. She had been a vassal of Lord Rowan. So that's pretty a big deal that this marriage shifted away from the vassal of Rowan to marry a vassal of the West in, in uh, Lady Rain. Of course, the Rains were more powerful, um, maybe not in the grand scheme of things, but in the West, they're more powerful, obviously, than a breach house. You know, on the scale of Westerosi politics, Rain and Rowan were probably roughly equal, but not within their, not when you have home field advantage, where obviously the Rowans, when they're in the reach, hold more sway than they would anywhere else. So these, uh, this back and forth is a pretty important thing to keep note of. And mostly, though, just the thing to know here is how big a deal it is that Lady Ellen managed to convince this to happen, managed to convince the lords to switch these betrothals. That almost never happens. It's considered a kind of an embarrassment or a little miniature scandal when you change these arrangements. Betrothals are... You know, they sign their seal of honor on these things. It's like their word is good. It's a, it's a little bit of going back on your word when you break these things. The exception being when, when someone dies, which is what happened. But that wasn't a reason to break uh, existing betrothal where neither party died. <laughs> so in order to find a new husband for Lady Ellen, a different betrothal was separated. That's highly unusual. So House Rowan was probably upset. Now, they don't play a big role in the story, but... They might be pushing things on the outside. You never know if they're in the king's ear. We know that later Aegon V is going to have a lot of issues with the way the West is run under Lord Titus. You never know if some of this stuff comes around, comes full circle. Hey, those Reigns and Lannisters screwed us. We're going we're gonna to get back at them. That kind of thing. But not directly. Obviously, they're not raising armies and marching on Cashley Rock. <laughs> now we have a complete switch up. And uh, Nina thinks that 
it's possible after Tion broke his Rowan betrothal that Lord Rowan declared that he was going to settle the succession of Coldmoat as he saw fit. And that might mean stripping Coldmoat from the Webbers. And that might have something to do with Rohan's disappearance or her frustration over that whole situation, meaning that if her family lost their lands because of her embroilment with House Lannister, there's a story in there somewhere. George is probably saving it, but Rohan's disappearance, we've got to figure something out. There's got to be. We've got to theorize somehow, right? So that could be what happened. To summarize that, betrothal's broken, Lord Rowan gets mad and takes Coldmoat away from the Webbers. As additional supporting evidence for this, there's a Weber in the Windblown, not the Golden Company, because usually you find these characters in the Golden Company, but in the Windblown, there's a guy who calls himself Weber, and he's covered in spider tattoos, and he he says he nurses claims to lands lost in Westeros. Well, the Tattered Prince says he nurses claims lost to lands lost in Westeros. Same difference. So... You know, he might be the guy who, a descendant from the guy who got stripped of those Rowan lands. Entirely possible. Okay, so now we jump forward to 235. Two years later, the double wedding of Tion and Titos and Ellen, not them getting married to each other, that is. Ellen becomes de facto Lady of Casterly Rock. She's married to Tion and, well... As her good father retreated to his books and his bedchamber, Lady Ellen held a splendid court staging a series of magnificent tourneys and balls and filling the rock with artists, mummers, musicians, and reigns. Mm. Her brothers, Roger and Raynard, were ever at her side, and offices, honors, and lands were showered upon them, and upon her uncles, cousins, and nephews, and nieces as well. Lord Gerald's aged fool, an acerbic hunchback called Lord Toad, was heard to say... Lady Ellen must surely be a sorceress, for she has made it rain inside the rock all year. Now, this won't last very long, the wedding of the marriage of Tion and Ellen, because Tion is going to die in the fourth Blackfire Rebellion, one of the very few casualties on the Loyalist side. So it's very impressive that she's able to do all this in such a short time, because, yeah, it's a short time. 235 was the wedding, and Tion dies in 236. So... Wow, right? This is a very impressive woman. You may not like her, but she is skilled. She is a, has a lot of ability and gets what tends to get what she wants. And when she doesn't, well, it's a problem for a lot of people, not just her, as we shall see. So she's running Casterly Rock after being married to the guy who isn't even the Lord, the heir. He's the heir. Tion is the heir. So there is that. But Gerald the Golden, as much as he had ruled well for a while, has, hasn't has been the same since Lady Rohan disappeared. His health isn't great. He becomes kind of a King Aerys I sort of figure where he's just reading his books, hanging out with poets and just kind of in retirement, uh, you know, which is going to be a familiar scenario here for a while because when Titus takes over, well, he's going to be like that but worse. Rather than just absent, he's going to be making bad decisions. So it's going to go from lackadaisical to sloppy lackadaisical to weak lackadaisical. And Ellen Rain's going to be around for all of it, but not directly around. So she's 
spending money. She's inviting her brother. She's designating titles. That's one thing that really tells you how powerful she was. Because if she's just like arranging parties, well, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean she has a lot of power. That means she has the purse strings, which is something. But that's a different thing than appointing political offices, giving people important jobs. That's real power. You know, throwing parties is important, you know, but it's not as, especially for these kind of characters, but it's not as important as that. But she's doing both. She's doing all of it. I mean, she's running things. This is totally in charge. She's the boss lady, boss lion. And she wanted that. It wasn't like we need someone to do this. No, she clearly took to it, uh, stepped up and took charge and yeah there was no one there to take charge and seemed like Tion was the type I guess or maybe he was just so overridden by Ellen that he was just like yeah okay like a little Emin Frey type guy like yes yes dear you you're in charge that kind of thing don't really know all we know is that Ellen was running things and Lord Gerald this is important you know we talk about how Titos let these things happen. Gerald had a strong will. He just didn't use it here. So when we say Ellen caused all these things to happen, some of the stuff you got to lay on him. He let it happen. He was in charge. He was capable. He just kind of wasn't around. I mean, uh, he was depressed, I guess. He was depressed. Yes, it's true. <laughs> to put it clearly, to put it plainly, I think that seems to be the case. And, and some of it was his health, too, not just his mental health. Because we know he's going to have a bounce back. So it's part of part of where I'm coming from here. Nina writes that the Rain-Tarbeck Rebellion is often viewed as the story of the scheming Reigns and Tarbecks versus the weak-willed Titos Lannister, but the Lannister allowance of Reigns soft power started here. This is where it began. It didn't start under Titos. Gerald's the one who sort of allowed the encroaching to begin. Now, he, of course, he didn't cause it to happen, but it did begin under his watch. Now, that quote, that line, Lady Ellen must surely be a sorceress for she has made it rain inside the rock all year. Lord, Lord Toad was whipped for this. For, this is highly out of line. Uh, for one thing, fools are supposed to be able to say what they want. It's like they're, that's the, they're the one person that can say what they want. They can insult people and they're supposed to be able to get away with it. Like, remember, for example, in uh, the Crescent chapter. There's a lot of examples. Mushroom. I mean, they, they're supposed to take some of the ego and pride away from these all-powerful people. That's the express purpose of their existence, at least part of it. So that she's going against that to whip him is setting herself above even that level of station. Even kings and queens are supposed to be uh, accepting of the mockery of fools to some level, but not her, not Lady Ellen. So this gives you a sign of what kind of person she is. She's, You know, I think she's the kind of person you want to go to the strip club with. <laughs> likes to make it rain. <laughs> yes, you do want to do that. You definitely do. Also, it's uh, not that, it doesn't even seem that insulting, right? Like, she made it rain inside the rock? Like, is that yeah. really... She's just saying, yeah, you, you take care of your own. That's basically what the fool is saying. Yeah, it doesn't even seem that rude. Like, as far as things fools say, it isn't even, <laughs> it's not even like, it's, it's pretty mild, right? So, anyway, uh, Lord Toad, however, doesn't back down. He keeps running his mouth because that's what he's supposed to do. And, you know, uh, Lady Rain lost her position, so he was quick to point that out. So, you know, Lord Toad may have had the last laugh if he lived long enough. Nina writes that uh, the world of ice and fire calls Ellen proud and quick to anger as an apparent criticism for having the fool whipped. 
Tywin might do that sort of thing, though. And in fact, Tyrion remembers an anecdote just like that. Uh, quote, a fool more foolish than most had once jested that even Lord Tywin's shit was flecked with gold. Some said the man was still alive deep in the bowels of Cashley Rock. Now, was that a real fool or just a, a f guy that Tyrion's calling a fool? I I'm not really sure. But if that was also a fool, then... Boy, these, these Western lords, it, they really can't handle the... I would guess it's a fool because he says a fool more foolish than most. Yeah. As in more foolish than most other fools. Yeah, you're right. Probably. Probably. Like a, a fool that is actually foolish, not foolish. Not just a fool. <laughs> and that also doesn't seem like that much of an insult. Like, he's got shit with gold in it. Like well, Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's a statement on how Tywin has no tolerance for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he doesn't take any or leave any of that. Uh, so fast forward to the next year, 236, Tion dies during the fourth Blackfire Rebellion, and here's another quote. As Ser Tion's body was laid to rest within Casterly Rock, Gerald the Golden roused himself and took firm hold of the Westerlands once more, intent on doing all he could to prepare his third-born son, the weak-willed and unpromising boy Titos, to succeed him. The reign of the reigns was at an end. Lord... Unpromising boy. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> the reign of the reigns was at an end, Lord Toad the Hunchback declared, rejoicing. Lady Ellen made one final attempt to cling to her place, declaring that she was with child by Sertion, but when the moons turned and her belly failed to swell, she was seen to be a liar. So I have some theories about this, and I think it's pretty interesting. Now... Was she just hoping she was pregnant and was saying so? Like, surely she could see how that wouldn't accomplish anything. So my guess is that she pulled or tried to pull a maneuver similar to ones we've seen in some TV shows uh, out there, like the show Rome or and a lot of other real world examples of monarchs trying to hold on to power or queens trying to hold on to power. She may have tried to get pregnant on the sly you know, with like a stable boy or just, just pl plenty of blonde kids around Castley Rock, right? It is the West. There's Lannisters everywhere. So if she could just get pregnant and have a blonde child, she could easily claim it was Sertion's and no one would be able to prove it wasn't, right? There might be suspicions, but she would have her foot in the door. Without a baby, she does not have that. I mean, she could use her brothers, could enforce her claims and like oh that's really a rain child that's really a lannister boy that's sir Tion's kid right they would use th their weapons <laughs> their armies to enforce this truth or lack thereof but without a kid you can't tell that lie the whole thing falls apart by the way it makes me wonder about like what kind of tunnel systems exist in casterly rock like what kind of secret passageways exist it made me think about Ty uh, tywin and his possible secret passage to Chitayas, and if that's where he got the idea. And like, well, I, know, I live in a place where there's tunnels already. What if I had one built over here in the Red Keep? Kind of a uh, side subject to think about, something to ponder. Lord Toad is merciless with his mockery when no child appears, and we have Gerald the Golden, as it says, roused himself and took firm hold of the Westerlands once more. So the reign of reigns is over, right? So there's no more Ellen isn't running things anymore and she can't find her way back to the top without this child. So with less uh, power at court, the Red Lion leaves. So does Reynard and others. Now, of course, we need to to jump back to 
what happened at the starting of Starpike here, uh, just for a little context. If this was a show or a movie, the prologue or opening scene would be the storming of Starpike. You would have Tywall dying and Tion's arms saying, take care of Lady Ellen for me, you know, and you've got this moving scene. And then you have, then you cut to Roger Rain killing seven captive peaks and earning his nickname, the Red Lion. And Aegon, King Aegon, well, Prince Aegon comes in and puts a stop to all that. There's your opening scene. Flash forward to the wedding, the double wedding. Then you have this other stuff of the of the Lord Toad and the fake pregnancy and all that. Now you have the return of Gerald the Golden. And, well, let's take Nina's take on this. The downside of a hereditary aristocratic system. We've spoken of many of the other downsides, but here's another one. When power is inherently personal, vested in the holder rather than the office, right? Meaning Ellen or Gerald, these are the people that hold the power and wield the power even when they don't have the office. Like, Ellen never had the office, but she wielded the power for a whole year there, and she was good at it, as Stephen Atwell pointed out last time. So she could be the most capable person to play Lady of Castle Rock. She might be the most qualified. I'm not saying she is, but let's say she was. She certainly showed some qualifications for it. But she's not the wife or mother or heir or mother of heir of these things. So they can't let her have the job. They can't just appoint her to that. I mean, they can, but they, their structure of things doesn't allow for that. And so, and that might, things might've worked out better if they had allowed that. Maybe she would have encroached too much. Maybe she would have pushed for power, but being pushed aside is what triggered her to fight so hard to get back in it. If they could have just left her to keep running things because she was good at it, then maybe a lot of this wouldn't have happened. Maybe it still would have. We don't know. Either way, there starts to become more of a rivalry as Jane Marbrand comes onto the scene. That is, by the way, Tywin's mother. That uh, she starts to supplant Ellen and you get sort of a, a rivalry. Nina writes, I see Ellen's motivation at this moment only as the mother of Tion's posthumous child. Would she have any continued standing at the Lannister court? Exactly. So that's why she's trying to force her way in by saying, look, if I have a kid, if I have the heir, then I get to rule for 15, 16 years or something like that. It is possible she really thought she was pregnant and just believed it. Uh, she seems- Yeah, I mean, she lost her husband and would have been stressed out. She could have, her period could have stopped, you know. There's a number of reasons why that might have happened. Yeah, maybe she had a miscarriage, too. Maybe she had a yeah. early... Makes Lord Toad's comments all the more cruel. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Very true. So, uh, and it was the case, uh, Anina notes, that with Queen Mary I, she said she was pregnant. But after 11 months, you know, well, clearly there was no baby. <laughs> so it's not even uh, something George has invented for the story. It's something that has happened in the real world. Here is another quote. Lady Ellen remained, but her influence dwindled away to nothing. No longer was she allowed access to the Lannister gold, nor called to council, nor included in decisions and deliberations. And though Lord Gerald permitted her to attend when he held court, she was not allowed to speak. Knights no longer begged tokens of her favor at tourneys. Jewelers and dressmakers no longer lavished her with gifts in hopes of her patronage. Petitioners no longer came to ask her to intercede for them before the court. 
and the singers who had once vied with one another to praise her face and form now sang of Lord Titus's young wife Jane instead, for that solemn, shy, plain-faced child had blossomed into a great beauty. So you can really see the Cersei vibes here, right? Cersei being pushed aside because of the death of Robert holding on to power. Uh, despite Tywin trying to push her aside, Tyrion getting in there, other people ignoring her and just trying to rule through her kids. But her kids aren't really Robert's kids. <laughs> so you can that's a very strong parallel here. And of course, even along with this beauty stuff, Cersei's uh, not as attractive as she used to be. And she notices that and she notices how that impacts how people view her. And there's the whole Valonqar prophecy that includes a younger, more beautiful queen will come along to uh, cast you down. So very similar in that without the prophecy stuff, but with similar vibes on both sides. So Ellen comes up with another method of getting and holding power. She tries to bed Titos, who is, you know, of course, the heir now. But Titos is... Apparently so intimidated by her that he can't perform. It's not that he doesn't, it's not that he stands up to her and doesn't want to cheat on his wife. He just is, just can't do it. <laughs> he just, Boop. Lady Jane was willing to pardon her young husband his fumbled infidelity, but was less forgiving of her good sister and did not hesitate to inform Lord Gerald of the incident. Furious, his lordship resolved to rid Casterly Rock of Ellen Rain for good and all by finding her a new husband. Ravens flew and a hasty match was made. Within the fortnight, Ellen Rain was wed to Walderin Tarbeck, Lord of Tarbeck Hall, the florid 55-year-old widowed lord of an ancient, honorable, but impoverished house. A wallowing walrus of a man, Lord Toad called him. If bellies were brains, he might have been the wisest man in all the West. That's some pretty good alliteration there, Lord Toad. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Again, you see some Cersei vibes because... Tywin tried to send Cersei away from court, wouldn't let her talk, tried to, you know, keep her out of ruling because she had made so many mistakes and because she was not ruling the way he wanted to. So, and if, what does she do? She sleeps with uh, Lancel. Now, that wasn't to hold on to power. That wasn't for influence. That was just because she wanted to get laid. But still, it's uh, <laughs> it was highly unacceptable <laughs> for the family. <laughs> it was another reason to... Uh, remove her from power but of course it didn't remove her from power she was still very powerful and that is also the case here even as lady ellen was sent away from court away from castley rock away from the center of power she's still able to make moves still able to wield power still able to be a problem for castley rock so now we move on to our next phase of the setup for the reigns of Castamere, that is the War of the Wombs. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so the War of the Wombs roughly starts around 240, the following year. Rohan Tarbeck is born. Ellen Rain wasn't able to have kids with any of her Lannister dalliances, but she had kids with 55-year-old uh, wallowing walrus of Walderin. <laughs> uh, he had already had sons from a prior marriage, so he had clearly was capable. So Rohan Tarbeck was born. The next year, Sorel Tarbeck was born. And the next year, Tion Tarbeck was born. And then Jane Marbrand gets into the mix. The same year, Tywin is born. 
Now let's pause there before we describe the births of more children, because these names aren't just repetitions of names you've heard before because they're beloved ancestors. No, it's the opposite. This is Lady Ellen being petty. She named Rohan Rohan Tarbeck because she was trying to needle Gerald about Rohan Weber running away from him. She named Sorel Tarbeck Sorel because that's the name of the niece that Gerald probably murdered to take power. Needle number two. Needle number three is Tion himself, the one she was going to marry, the one that was killed in the fourth Blackfire Rebellion. So she's cruel even with her naming. That's going to backfire, though. So Tywin is born the same year as Tion Tarbeck. And then two years later, Kevin is born. More importantly, though, Lord Gerald dies in the year 244. He passes of a bad bladder and Titos becomes Lord of Casterly Rock. And the reign of the Laughing Lion begins. And yes, it's pretty weak, as we well know. He's going to reign for 23 years after Gerald ruled for about 31. Yeah, 31 years. And the next year, Jane Marbrand still going. Jenna Lannister is born. And then five years after that, Tyget Lannister is born. Five more years after that, Jerrion Lannister is born. But then Jane Marbrand dies a month later. Uh, so it's sort, of, it's sort of like dying in childbirth or dying from childbirth because it wasn't during so, by the way, as an aside, this War of the Wombs is something that Tywin was born as a part of. So it's even worse when you when we consider how he was going to force Cersei to remarry to have even more kids, considering his own mother died in this, quote, War of the Wombs. And this also is something that Jerrion and Tyrion have in common, that they both were the last born and that their mothers died as a result. They both have similar personalities. They got along. They're sort of detached. So you can kind of see that as somewhat standard things that happen to people that grow up without their mother. Um, I wonder, too, if anyone blamed Jerrion for uh, Jane's death, given that Tywin blamed Tyrion for Joanna's death. Hopefully not, because that's a cruelty we don't even need to wish on fictional characters. So we one, one character we don't know about when she was born is Joanna. Joanna Lannister, as in Tywin's future wife and Tyrion's mom and all that. Uh, she is, of course, the daughter of Jason Lannister, who is Tywin, or Tytos' younger brother. And Joanna was born sometime after Tywin. They were pretty close in age. We're not sure how close, but so she was probably born in 243 or 244. She's probably around the same age as Kevin or maybe closer to Tywin. They're all very close together. It's not important to get the exact details. So that's the whole run of the of the uh, of this War of the Wombs, basically, where and all during that time, we have Ellen trying to gain more power. She's building House Tarbeck up to be stronger. It's basically kind of a situation where, you know, you can, if I can't rule at Casterly Rock, well, I'm going to make my new home just as great as Casterly Rock. I'm going to make the new Casterly Rock over here. That's kind of what she set about doing. She was very, she's still keeping her ambitions rolling, building power, gaining strength. Meanwhile... <laughs> what's happening back over at Castley Rock is Titos is leading things in the opposite direction, which Ellen probably was very ready to pounce on that situation. Just let him get a little weaker and then we'll see what happens. 
My lord father would have made a splendid innkeep, observed Jerrion Lannister, the youngest of Lord Titus's four sons, years later, but old Toad would have been a better lord. He was not wrong. House Lannister reached Nadir during the years that the Laughing Lion held court at Casterly Rock. The lords of the Westerlands had known Titus Lannister since birth. A few did their best to support him, offering him sage counsel and their swords when needed. The chief amongst these was Lord Alan Marbrand, Lady Jane's father, who became a pillar of strength for his daughter and her lord husband. Now, setting aside the terrible methods they used, under Gerald and Tywin, the West was strong. And Titos was the weak meat in that sandwich. So they went Gerald the Golden, Laughing Lion, and then Tywin. And of course, yeah, in between, hmm, yeah. And of course, that in between is when much of the groundwork for the final climax of the reigns of Clastomere to come together. Maester Belden, in one of his letters to the Citadel, wrote, His lordship wants only to be loved, so he laughs and takes no offense and forgives and bestows honors and offices and lavish gifts on those who mock him and defy him, thinking thereby to win their loyalty. Yet the more he laughs and gives, the more they despise him. The maester was not the only man in Casterly Rock to see what was happening. His lordship's wife, the Lady Jane, could see it too, as could her father. Time and again they urged Lord Titus to be firm, and he would swear to do so, only to retreat, forgive, or procrastinate once more. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a softy when you aren't in power. That's the problem, though. If you're in power and people are depending on you, you have to have a level of strength. You have to have a level of pushback against people who would use your weakness to abuse others. It's pretty simple. And the, ex- uh, the exercise of it isn't. But the concept is. So this isn't just a weak man. This is a weak man causing lots of harm through his weakness. You have injustice. You have blood spilled over this weakness. You have people fighting because they need to be kept in line, right? They are, these are aggressive people. They are wolves and lions and all sorts of dangerous creatures that don't behave like people. If you are, if you give them the chance, they will attack each other and fight each other. And if they don't see the strength behind the authority telling them, no, they're going to go ahead and do it anyway and challenge that authority. And if that authority is proven openly to be unable to stop what's happening, then less aggressive just as ambitious people will also step forward. Once the most aggressive people knock that wall down and see there's no teeth behind that authority, then the rest will come through and do do their worst as well. It becomes open season. It becomes chaotic. And that's what happened here. Weakness begets weakness. The ambition, uh, the ambitious will encroach. And they know how to take advantage. They know the specific ways. It's not just, oh, they're not going to do anything about this. Oh, we can get away with this because they're going to ignore it. It's not just that. It's deeper than that. It gets involved with connections and making arrangements and, well, marriages. In the year 252, Titus arranges the Jenna Emin Frey marriage, and that didn't go well. I was seven when Walder Frey persuaded my lord father to give my hand to M. His second son, not even his heir, 
Father was himself a third-born son, and younger children craved the approval of their elders. Frey sensed that weakness in him, and Father agreed for no better reason than to please him. My betrothal was announced at a feast with half the West in attendance. Ellen Tarbeck laughed, and the Red Lion went angry from the hall. The rest sat on their tongues. Only Tywin dared speak against the match. A boy of ten. Father turned as white as mare's milk, and Walter Frey was quivering. Walter Frey was quivering because he said, the Freys aren't good enough, basically. <laughs> He's like, to his face, he said that. It's like, that house is too far beneath us, father. Yeah. <laughs> Something like yeah, that. A 10-year-old boy saying yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, can, sometimes the kids just say, the you know, speak the blunt truth. And this is like, <laughs> it's like, daddy, they're too lowborn. <laughs> so, woo, yeah. So why did... The Red Lion go angry from the hall, though. Like, Ellen Tarbeck laughs. She's already married. She's like, look how pathetic they are. She's just trying to push them down even farther. It's all part of this angling to rise above the traditional power. Again, she can't have, she can't be included, so she's going to make her spot better. But again, why did the Red Lion leave? He never got married, nor did Reynard, his younger brother. I kind of think, and it's not much of a stretch at all because of how often the Reigns and Lannisters would have likely married before, and given that they were going to be married if before these unfortunate deaths happened that kind of split all that apart. So I'm thinking the Red Lion expected to marry Jenna himself or Reynard himself, uh, or Reynard marry her uh, instead, because she was the one daughter of the Rock, the one daughter of the Lord of Casterly Rock, and they're the top family. They would expect to have that. And if not that, well, Kevin was nine by this point. Rohan Tarbeck was 13. Sorel Tarbeck was 12. Tion Tarbeck and Tywin were 11. So there's a lot of betrothals that could have happened, even if not this one. There's a lot of different marriages that could have happened between these two families, but they didn't. Like, yeah, Kevin could have been betrothed to either Rohan or Sorel. Tion could have been betrothed to Jenna instead of uh, Reynard or the Red Lion. That would have been a little more age-appropriate. But hey... Age appropriate doesn't come into it when we're guessing what they might have done. They might have made a 20-year-old man marry a 7-year-old girl. They do that sort of thing. We can't ignore that possibility. So the point is, there's a lot of options here. But they, of course, were not going to take Lady Ellen as an in-law again. They were done with her. So that actually maybe wasn't as much of a consideration as it could have been, especially given the daughter's names were weaponized. Like, they don't want to bring a Rohan into their into court who's named as an insult for their missing Rohan Weber. So, yeah, that's not going to happen. But even with that removed, there's these options of the Red Lion, of Reynard, of... Some of the others, the other kids, there's unnamed children and cousins as well, for example, uncles, things like that. So there was an attempt to smooth things over, it seems like, though. There was something that happened here because almost immediately after, several things took place. Kevin was sent to become a page and then later squire for the Red Lion. And Tywin was just sent away. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was one of those, well... We're going we're gonna to send you away, but we're going to do it in a, in a fashion that doesn't look embarrassing. He was sent to King's Landing to be a cupbearer to Egg, who was king by then. So being cupbearer to the king, well, you can't exactly be like, oh, this is embarrassing. No, that's Tywin going to court to learn things. That's a pretty good thing. Nina writes some, has some thoughts here as well that are similar uh, to some of the things I said, but they go into greater detail. 
She also agrees that Jenna could have been the means of binding up these differences. This She could have been the linchpin to solving this growing discontent between these two powerful houses. A, a marriage between a daughter of the rock and a son of Castamere might have been exactly what was needed. Like this is just standard operating procedure, right? Two, ha- two very powerful houses. You don't want full civil war happening between two houses with great resources. Yeah, the Reigns aren't as powerful as the Lannisters, but the Lannisters don't want their second most powerful vassal going to war with them. Yeah, they, they're pretty sure they'd win, but why would they want that? It's not ideal for anyone. Nobody, even if they win, they don't win because they've weakened themselves and weakened their second most powerful vassal who normally would be at their side. So there's a lot of incentive to fix the situation, which is probably what the Red Lion was expecting, which is probably why he stomped out of the hall like the one daughter of the Rock available to be married. And she marries the Frey, not even the firstborn Frey. So you can see why that's insulting to them, because not only was it a wasted opportunity to solve this growing discontent, they kind of felt like they had first claim to her. Now, I'm not going to say that's true or, or right that they had that, but you can tell these prideful second in line families. Yeah, they they probably felt like they had dibs. <laughs> I mean, after girl, I'll repeat that these two lords were not married or Lord and his his brother, who would have been his heir. So Reynard was... Roger's heir until the time that Roger had his own kids, which he never did. So that's a really important uh, moment in this saga that could have maybe settled it, but instead he made it worse again. So we see Titus's weakness makes it worse. Walter Frey talked him into it. This wasn't his idea. He wasn't like, you know what would be a good idea? A Frey marriage. That's what I was getting at. We're talking about how these these weaker figures get manipulated by people who are not just willing to manipulate, but know exactly how and what to say and how to get it. Walter Frey is really good at that. Like, as much as we hate the guy, he's not a dummy. He really manipulated Titus here into getting what he wanted. And he got it. <laughs> and now that same son and uh, daughter-in-law have River Run. <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Probably won't be good. The reigns of River Run. Yeah. The Red Wedding 2.0 at River Run. Yeah, I don't think it's going to go well for, for Jenna or for Emin. Worse for Emin, probably. But <laughs> that's, that's splitting hairs. It's going to be bad for both of them, probably. Let's take a quick break here. A couple of questions and we move on to the uh, next step in this excellent story. Justin DL97 says, A catch I'm very proud of. The first line of reigns has the same meter as for hand of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. And who are you? The proud Lord said that I must bow so low. Hey, that is good. Very good. You have some uh, music in you there, Justin. You've got good rhythm. That's right. George uh, is himself not a, uh, you know, not a musician, um, but he writes lyrics pretty well. So uh, it makes sense that he would maybe in the back of his head subconsciously kind of use the same rhythm. I, I pointed out something similar before when in Roy Dotrice's reading of some of the songs in the in the audiobook, he just puts a little melody to it just for the heck of it. But he <laughs> he does like nursery rhymes and one of them he does. Uh, I think it's um, London Bridge and another one he does uh, Night Before Christmas. Or um, Grant, yeah, the yeah that one. So there's a, it's <laughs> really funny. So I love that. There's a way little earworms, uh, little melodies get in the back of your head. You don't even realize you're doing it. 
Guinevere Greenstone says, how much do you think Jamie and Cersei try to emulate their parents' relationship? Particularly interesting as that influence is entirely from childhood memories, which are biased and unreliable. Does Cersei believe that Castamere represents her mother's method of operation? Good question, but technically no. We haven't gotten there yet, but Joanna wouldn't have had anything to do with that. Joanna was at court as a lady-in-waiting to Rayella when Tywin brought down the lake on Castamere. So she would have been at court and not part of this decision at all. It's possible they communicated over. It's possible she got in his ear and was like, you know, this is the kind of thing you should do. It's possible she had a role, but we can't make that assumption because she probably had nothing to do with it at all. That said, I also want to refer to the fact that Cersei does not think of the reigns of Castamere at any point. It never comes up during any of her chapters. It's not mentioned. I suspect it might at some point. But to date, yeah, I do want to know more about Joanna. I wonder how she thinks about that. But she didn't get to Joanna wasn't a big influence on either of them because she died so young. But I do have a perception that Joanna and Tywin operated similarly in a lot of ways. It it would explain why they got along so well. Uh, So I would guess I would lean a little bit towards yes. Maybe she's not the type to go quite so far as bringing the reins, the mines down and destroying an entire house. But she might be. She might be. Because she grew up in the same era with him. She was the same age as him. The same era where Ellen Rain was doing her thing and, and scheming. Jenna calls Ellen Rain that scheming bitch. So I think she was very unpopular with the Lannisters. So I think Joanna probably was entire. It's entirely possible and believable that she would be vicious towards the Reigns too because of things like... Ellen naming her kid Rohan and Sorel, like that would be with them constantly. This rivalry that seems to have gone far beyond rivalry. That's the unspoken bit here. How much hatred these young Lannisters would have had for this woman and probably for her her uncle for her brothers. And maybe even more for some of them. Who knows? Like maybe they hated Reynard even more. I don't know. It seems like Ellen was the one they would have hated because she would have been, she was the proud one ruling over them. She's the one that lied about the pregnancy. She's the one that did all these things. Doesn't seem like Roger and Reynard did half as much as she did, at least personally, to the Reigns. So I think that's a pretty big deal. Stephen Hansen says, is there a chance Tywin was in league with the Reigns and Tarbex, then betrayed them to usurp his own father? I would say no, partly because of this because of how much hatred there was between these houses. It'd be hard for Tywin to work with someone he hated that much. Um, And of course, he didn't need to usurp his own father because, uh, you know, he was able to just do what he wanted without his father stopping him, for the most part. There's a few exceptions to that. For example, Tywin may not have wanted to be sent to court to be a cupbearer for Aegon, but maybe he was okay with it. Who knows? The point being, Tywin was pretty much in charge even while Tytos was around, other than a few things. Tony3483 asks, which house has the Valyrian steel sword Red Rain? One of the Iron Owls. Well, this was brought up because uh, Tony thought potentially Red Rain used to be owned by House Rain. And let me tell you, we had the same thought ourselves years ago. And we asked George this directly at a Q&A, whether House Drum, that's the Iron Islands house that took Red, um, Red Rain from someone, whether they took it from House Rain? No. Just yeah. a straight up flat no. Just a coincidence just rain you it know really red would, rain it mm-hmm. would make so much sense red rain is such a perfect name for it a really rain would. sword <laughs> <laughs> with their red hair it just <laughs> and the iron islands have attacked the that red coast so, so many so, times yeah. it, it, it makes so much sense but oh well yep. i shouldn't have asked i should have been able to keep our head <laughs> speaking of 
let's talk about how Shea and I, we, we heard this extended Westerlands version. We're, we're kind of going in and out of the main win, uh, World of Ice and Fire chapter on the Westerlands and the extended version. Some of these quotes are, are in both. Some of them are only in the extended one. But as you all know, Shea and I have been to a lot of conventions, but this was the first convention that we went to that George R. R. Martin was at. It was uh, Kansas City, right? Yeah, uh, no, it was uh, Con oh, Carolinas. Con Carolinas. I'm sorry, I get those two confused all the time. Yeah. Con Carolinas, yeah, North Carolina, and George. This is we've mentioned an, an anecdote from this one before, which is that George, we were standing out line, we're standing in line outside to get our book signed, and we hot. were it was hot, and we were worried that the signing would end before we got there. And one of George's assistants came outside and said, "If you're in line now, doesn't matter how long it's going to take. George will stay here until everyone gets their stuff signed." So that was awesome. So George, we, we was our first like, oh, George is cool. <laughs> this was 2015? Yes. So that's pretty yeah, cool. It was the year The World of Ice and Fire was published just before. So uh, that was really awesome. Um, yeah, it was the same uh, the same uh, time we got to ask our first questions of him. I asked about... Um, I asked about... Uh, the Unnamed Princess of Dorne? Unnamed Princess of Dorne. And did you ask about... Um, I asked about Northstar? Artos. Yeah. I asked if Artos, the Implacable, had ever been Lord of Winterfell. And he said, no, he gave a quick no. And I, I had a different question in mind, actually, for that. But but by the time I, I got to the front of the line, the moderator said, we don't have much time left. Only yes or no questions. So, <laughs> so remember, Artos, the Implacable, was sort of like the regent uh, of House Stark during the era of... Uh, well, this era. Uh, well, not this era. Sorry. Like maybe tw- before the era at which we started this episode around the 230s. So he would have he would have stepped down not long before that. But he has a statue. That's why it was an important question, because he, he was one of those rare lords or non lords to get a statue in the crypts. So he's basically the, 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 the example that allows us to point to besides Brandon and Liana that Ned had made. So that's pretty cool. Um, a few of the details were changed, by the way, from this. We, for example, Ellen's the method of Ellen's death was changed, and the method of Teon's death was changed. They were changed to the same manner of death. <laughs> they both died separately. Instead, they died together in one event. And let's continue. So we we did a, a run through of basically fifteen years of of status quo where. Back and forth, kids being born. It kind of culminated with the Frey marriage in 252. Then Tywin is sent to court. Lady Jane Marbrand dies in 255. And Jerrion Lannister is born. And let's pick up the story here with another quote. 255. Yeah, this is, by the way, when Tywin's about 13. I just think it's kind of interesting that he lost his mom at 13. Very, very much so. Though she herself remained unwelcome at the rock, Lady Ellen had contrived to extract large sums of gold from House Lannister through her brothers, for Lord Titos found it very hard to refuse the Red Lion. Those funds she had used to restore the crumbling ruin that was Tarbeck Hall, rebuilding its curtain wall, strengthening its towers, and furnishing its keep in splendor to rival any castle in the West. At her urging, Lord Tarbeck expanded his domain by buying the lands of the lesser lords and landed knights about him, and taking by force the holdings of those who refused to sell. So again, we see some Cerseying there at the end. That's very similar to how Cersei just sort of absconded with House Rosby's stuff and a few other bits, uh, bits like that. Just really lording it over people. 
And so you've got this sort of two-headed lion, maybe three-headed if whatever Reynard's doing. Maybe Reynard is, my guess is Reynard is ruling things at Castamere while Red Lion is at Cashley Rock working it with Lord Titos, getting the money, asking for cash. And Lady Ellen's over there spending it, making defenses and, and furnishing her keep and, and having big parties to move the center of power to to her. And imagine if Tywin was there, he'd be blowing up like, are you kidding me, Dad? Stop giving money to our enemies. <laughs> it's like, hey, they're not our enemies. They're our friends. We've been friends forever. It's like, that's what we're supposed to be, Dad. But clearly they're trying to take power from us. Right? Right? Well, no, not right, because Tywin's not there to say that. He's at court being a cupbearer, <laughs> so he can't do any of this. He may have heard about it. He may get letters. He may be like, damn it, Dad, this is terrible. He's literally giving money towards defenses that Tywin will face <laughs> in a few years. <laughs> He's spending money for his enemy's defense. It's pretty bad. And it's not, we, this isn't even the half of it. Here's a, here's a passage from Nina. What's important to note about the years leading up to the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion is that the Reigns and Tarbecks were not at all alone in taking advantage of Titos's lack of rule. Yeah, she's right. It wasn't just the Red Lion and Ellen and these other folks. Everyone got in on it. They're like, he'll give you a loan? Uh, well, I better get, I'm going to get a loan too. Everyone's getting loans. Let's all go get loans. Oh, he'll give you this. He'll give you that. Okay. They probably just gather afterwards like, oh yeah, I got him to give me this. Oh, I got him. Oh, let me try that. I'm going to go ask him for that. They were just like, see how much you can get. They had that story right in the, um, in the book. They talk about pulling the lion's tail. Like how much can you insult him to his face and him not get mad? So you, if you imagine if they're insulting him to his face just as a game to see how far they can take it. You know they're doing it in these other ways, too. Uh, Nina continues, at the same time that the Rains and Tarbecks were restoring Tarbeck Hall and building roads and seps and holdfasts, the Farmans were building a private fleet to defend Fair Isle. Three landed knights and a small lord swore fealty to Highgarden. That's a huge deal. Even though it's small uh, lords here, just the fact that you're like... Guys on the border are like, you know, you're just not cutting it. We're going to go to Highgarden instead. Imagine if that were to continue uh, with larger scale lords leaving. The border shifts even more. But it continues. That's not it. Lords Jast and Falwell engage in a private war. That's supposed to be over with. That's the whole thing. No private wars anymore. That was done with. Aegon the Conqueror was like, no, you guys don't do that anymore. If you have small wars, they better be really small. Like, for example, Weber versus uh, Osgrey, when we're talking, you know, like 30 guys versus 30 guys, something like that. That's that's hardly even a war. I mean, it's it's just it's bad, but it's you know, we're talking about larger scale things here. Lord Staxpear just doubled the taxes on his small folk. And then hired cell swords to enforce that, like totally getting out of line here. They're just doing all these things that they're not supposed to do. But part of the reason they're doing it is that justice isn't being enforced. you got people getting away with things, not just the lords, but other people. And yeah, it's just falling apart. The state is not run well. This is what happens when you have weakness at the top. Not just weakness, but like hyper weakness, softness, a willingness to give, a willingness to suborn the value of the state in order to feel better about yourself yeah it's real bad what the situation feels like here is a small-scale version of the reign of Ares the first but 
Ares had Bloodraven in charge. He had a strong person operating while he was off reading his books. You know, uh, if, instead of that, we don't have a character here. It could have been Ellen <laughs> if because if, she was at least somewhat capable. But no, that didn't work out. So while we keep in mind the Dance of the Dragons as a nice parallel to some of this, the, the Blackfire Rebellions, or at least the era that supported it, is also pretty well... Uh, working as a parallel for us here. So Titos also takes Jerrion's wet nurse as his mistress. Um, after Jane dies, he needed somebody and he liked her. Tywin really hated this later, as we know. Of course, this wasn't the same mistress that he whipped and, and had walked through the streets because uh, Jerrion moved on to, I mean, uh, Titus moved on to a different serving girl uh, later, and that was the one. But, of course, the, no the, the nobility just doesn't like this sort of embarrassment, they consider it embarrassing when, you know, yeah, you're allowed to have dalliances with lower born people, but you're not supposed to like keep them in your bed and have them next to you and all that. You're supposed to keep that on the down low, supposed to in air quotes, of course. Uh, so this was probably another sign of weakness. The Lord saw this as a weakness amongst many, an embarrassment. Do you know Aziz? Does everything that happened at Castamere happen in the down low? <laughs> Nine-tenths of everything. <laughs> uh, here's another example of why this isn't just Ellen and the others just gaining more power and why there's a threat behind it. It isn't just, oh, yeah, we're cooler now. We're richer now. No, it's there's a threat behind this. Waldron Tarbeck had supported 20 household knights before his marriage to Ellen Rain. By 255 AC, that number had swollen to 500 Closely bound by bonds of blood and marriage, the reigns of Castamere and the Tarbecks of Tarbeck Hall would soon constitute the most serious threat to Lannister rule in the West since Lan the Clever had winkled the Casterlys out of Casterly Rock. Hmm. So you see, openly, the most serious threat to Lannister rule in the West. It's not a matter of theorizing that the reigns slash Tarbeck alliance here was seeking to eclipse the Lannisters it seems like everyone knew and Titus just wasn't going to do anything about it so again I'm never going to say Tywin was a good man I mean I might say he was smart or skilled but I'm not going to say he was a good as in good and evil person but there was a real threat to Lannister power here and it wasn't like the Reigns and Tarbecks are like good guys here they're not like oh it'd be better if they were in charge they're they're not they're, it's just more of the same, right? They would probably have ruled the way the Lannisters had. Not Titus specifically, but, you know. It'd be worse for the average person than Titus, probably, because they couldn't bully him into doing things. It could be, could be, yeah, could be. Either way, the situation wasn't tenable. I suppose we could put it that way. Now, Rohan Tarbeck at this point is going to be 15 to 16 years old, and somewhere around here she's gotten married. So it's kind of a continuation of the of the War of the Wombs because... Yeah, it's not strange to hear of a 15, 16-year-old girl getting married in Westeros. But keep in mind, folks, in war, we're used to seeing things during wartime. Most of the span of the books happens during war. When it's not wartime, they're, they don't push these marriages as much. They take their time a lot more, especially when you're not talking about the heirs. And Rohan Tarbeck was not the heir to Tarbeck Hall. So they were they were aggressively seeking alliances, and that's why they were pushing these marriages quickly. Now, interestingly, we don't know who 
this man was. Sorrell Tarbeck's going to get married pretty soon, too. But we don't know who their husbands are. It's kind of a rare case of usually the, the women are, are the ones who get unnamed or they're erased from history because maybe they don't play a role or what have you. But in this case, it's the dudes. And it does imply they were of lesser houses. Maybe they were even houses that had their land taken, right? Um, and we saw that pattern, right? Lady Ellen's out there offering to buy land from people. The people that don't, that say no, then they, uh, they find a way to get violent. It's, it's very mafia-esque. You're like, you're going to sell to us. You're going to take this fair price we offer. And if you don't, we're going to, you're going to wish you had. <laughs> it's going to get violent. Yeah, it's very mafia-esque. A little bit of a situation comes to a head here. So what happens is three knights come to complain that Lady Ellen has taken their land. She's done this enough times that someone finally said something. Uh, and finally, Titos does push back. Only a little bit. He's finally made. And the reason I'm assuming he pushed back was because he's probably heard this enough times. It's probably been like 10, 12, 15 times he's heard this. Finally, he's going to do a little something about it. He sends a small army led by Dennis Marbrand to handle it. The Tarbecks had friends even within Casterly Rock and knew of Lord Marbrand's coming even before he set out. Lord Titus had commanded his good father sternly not to involve the reins, for we have no quarrel with Castamir. But that did not stop Lady Tarbeck from sending to her brothers. Dennis Marbrand and his knights were still two days' ride from Tarbeck Hall when the Red Lion fell upon his camp in the night, slaying hundreds, amongst them old Marbrand himself. When word reached Casterly Rock, loud cries went out for war, and Maester Belden tells us that Lord Titos turned as purple as a plum and could not speak for his wrath. That's huge. Like, wow, they attacked the men sent by the Lord of Casterly Rock. They killed his knights and, and this Dennis Marbrand guy. Now, remember, Dennis Marbrand is, is an in-law. Titus married Jane Marbrand. This this is probably her brother or uncle or something. And wow. I mean, the boldness. This is a great example of them testing him. They really tested him big time. He actually got mad, but they still wiggle out of it. Even this, like how? Well, Reynard shows up full charisma and charm on display says, oh, it was a case of mistaken identity. He almost puts a little bit of blame on them saying, yeah, there's so many robber knights and bandits in, in the realm right now. We thought it was a group of them. And well, there are, there has been an uprising of additional bandits and brigands and broken men. There is more of that going on. It's still not a very plausible lie, but it's more plausible than it would have been in 20 years prior or 20 years later. So it works amazingly, <laughs> amazingly. He's, he, they give a blood price. They give an apology. There is a little bit more to it, though. Part of the reason it works is because Kevin is probably still a squire with the Red Lion. So if they come down too hard, they've got Kevin as a hostage. But they've got things they can do, too. They've got other they've got reins and tarbecks around them as well. So, again, he's mad as Taito's got. 
he just backed down again. He let them, he accepted this apology without really pushing back much and saying, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll just accept, we'll accept, sure. Yeah, you made a mistake. No big deal. Okay, I understand. Come on. What did we just say about sending a message about how far you can take it, about how far you can pull his tail? You just proved that you can kill his own in-laws men, his men, and if you apologize right and tell a good lie, you can even get away with that. I mean, wow, you can really, that message is loud and clear now that this Titos guy, if you thought he was a pushover, he's even more of a pushover than you thought. And what would Tywin think? I don't know. He still wasn't there. He's still at court. He's probably heard about this stuff. Maybe someone wrote him. Uh, I imagine he's communicating with with someone or multiple someones. He's probably really upset, but what could he do about it? What could he do? Not Nothing, really. Maybe send a, an angry letter to his father. Well, that's about it. I mean, yeah, even Nina agrees this 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 cover story is just ludicrous, but it allowed Titos to have something to... The opposite, whatever the opposite of a Cassus belly is, it's like uh, Cassus bend over, <laughs> you know, just the, I will Cassus kneel. Uh, yeah, whatever. He just give him a reason to back down and he'll do it. He's like, I'm looking for some people are looking for a reason to fight. He's looking for a reason to back down and he always seems to find it. So amazing, completely amazing that they got away with this, but. Not amazing that it's going to get worse after seeing this. And you also get to see, you understand why Tywin, he's like, wow, how am I going to undo, how am I going to repair our reputation when you have this? Only way he can repair this kind of damage to the Lannister reputation is by doing something the opposite of this week. And of course, you know it's coming. You know exactly what's coming, minus a few details maybe. It's just all going in the, it's all banked for later. This is like interest paid on nastiness that Tywin's going to have to deal out later. He's like, oh, as unruthless as my father is, it's putting us into ruthlessness debt. I'm going to have to be thrice as ruthless to make up for all this uh, wasted time, all this anti-ruthlessness. Paints a lot of picture of Tywin's extremeness in his beliefs and his just hyper-aggressive protecting of the family name. Think of when Tyrion was seized by Catelyn. It seemed like an overreaction. Some people are like, yeah, you should have known Tywin would do that, Catelyn. Well, you should have known he would do something. He did have this reputation. But still, setting Catelyn aside, because she's, you know, not the subject here, <laughs> and Tywin's the subject here, and this guy's just super obsessed with family, uh, the way people look at his family, and you can kind of see a lot of why. Not that, again, I'm not defending it, but you can see 12, 13-year-old boy full of anger and rage and doesn't have a mother around anymore eh, in a world where might makes right and his dad's the weakest guy of all, has the ability to be really powerful. What frustration he must have felt there. And you'll see Tywin's family pretty much takes his side on all this. They didn't really like Titos making the laughingstock of them. Again, Jenna calls Ellen a scheming bitch. Kevin and Kevin was Tywin's right-hand man from the get-go, right? Like really early on. Uh, Joanne and Tywin got along really well. It seems like the wind was blowing that direction towards Tywin. And it was just a matter of time. So moving on, it got worse. Like we said, that showing just how far Titos could be pushed meant 
everyone started pushing that hard. Here's our next quote. The years that followed were as dismal as any in the long history of the Westerlands. Even those houses that had hitherto remained leal to Casterly Rock went their own way now, for Lord Titus had proved himself unwilling, or unable, to enforce justice or punish malefactors, even those who slew men in his service. A score of private wars broke out across the West as rival lords strove for land, gold, and power. Outlaws, broken men, and robber knights became a plague upon the land. To give a physical parallel to this, think of the end of A Storm of Swords when we have the epilogue chapter for uh, Merit Frey. Merit Frey was a knight. He was big. He was a bully. He was strong. But then he got a severe head wound, and even a little tap on his head would give him a headache. That's Titos for emotional pushback. He can't handle anything, (laughs) any sort of being disliked even the tap on his emotions makes him crumble that's the best way i can explain it um in this example it's just getting worse it's getting a lot worse i think when you think about titos maybe before listening to this episode you probably had a milder idea of how weak this guy was you probably thought that oh tywin's such an aggressive guy the lannisters are so hyper they're so extra of course they're going to call their own dad weak compared to them they are you know he was i don't think it's necessarily was clear in a song of ice and fire proper just how weak titos was he wasn't just a softy he was a super softy he was an elite softy he was the softiest of softies so really needs to sink in it, it's not just just a regular weak man epic weak <laughs> and of course it's like i said this isn't just something to you know if this is just a private guy no big deal but The misrule is widespread. You heard the quote, bandits, robber knights, people killing each other, and they they know they do it because they can get away with it. There's rules that are enforced can be great things. Sometimes they're not because they can be bad rules. But rules that exist that aren't enforced are worse than not having rules. Because what happens when you have rules that aren't enforced is you have... The powerful people can hold everyone else to the rules, but the powerful people never get held to the rules themselves. So rules become arbitrary. They only apply to people who can, uh, who, who are on the right side of things, who have people to stand up for them. So, of course, the people who are poorer or the small folk, you know, to use a modern analogy, uh, lower income folks, people that don't have as much political power, they get pushed around. They don't have anyone to stand up for them. Uh, you have a weak leader at the top. Nothing changes. It, it, worse, the, the wolves at the door the jackals, the people who come in, they extract evil from this weakness. That's what happened to Titus. So there you go. Um, you've got the king gets involved. Egg. It's so bad that Egg himself is like, you guys need to get the West under control here. It's making me look bad even. And of course, Egg doesn't care about reputation as much. He actually cares <laughs> as far as we know. He actually cares about the lives of these people. So he took it on upon himself. He sent... His knights three times, like his household knights, I guess, maybe even led by Dunk. I don't know. Maybe he probably sent a Kingsguard or two to go do that. Sends his knights to do that three different times. Every time they clean some business up, leave, it just goes right back to how it was before. It's like, okay, well, those knights are gone. We go right back to what we're doing. The, the cat's away, the rats will play, that kind of situation. 
it just doesn't work. It, it just nothing's working. And it just continues in this fashion. The one thing that Titus has going for him that's keeping him in place uh, is his vast wealth. He's probably bribed a lot of people. He's still giving people loans and not paying them back. That's one thing that's uh, otherwise he might have someone might have killed him by now or something like that, you know, uh, but uh, the, too many people were taking advantage of his weakness. His weakness was while causing so much harm to so many people was also a strength in terms of keeping him alive because people like the Reigns could continue to extract loans from him that they would never pay. He's still the the golden goose and they're taking all the eggs. And, and Nina asked the question, why would anyone at this point want to be a vassal of Castle Rock? Why would you, if if the Lord of Castle Rock would do nothing for his own in-law, his own, for Dennis Marbrand, and believes this just monstrously unbelievable lie? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that doesn't make you feel safe. You're like, okay, so the, the core of the vassal uh, overlord relationship is I give you taxes, I support you, you protect me. That guy's incapable of protecting anyone. He didn't protect his own family. Despite his massive wealth, all his resources, he still can't do it. Can't count on that. You cannot count on that. You can understand why there's unrest. People are in fear. A lot of them are afraid. They're like, we don't have protection anymore. So if the Reigns and Tarbex are like, we're solid. We're a block of power. We're building up our castle. We got, we're telling him what to do. Come to us. Hmm? Yeah, it was working. So it's the year 258 now, and Rohan Tarbeck has a son with her unnamed husband. And again, like I said, Sorel has now become married. So there's another generation of, of Rain Zintarbeck's coming along. But then, Summerhall. Summerhall comes, and, Jer and Titos gets a bit of a reprieve. Maybe not a reprieve, but he stops hearing from the king about taking care of his realm because there's no more king. And uh, <laughs> this is when Joanna leaves Casterly Rock. So she would be reunited with Tywin because Tywin's been at court this whole time. She goes to be Rhaella's lady-in-waiting after, you know, the court kind of resets itself after Summerhall and, and the ascension of Jaehaerys and Shara. And uh, before Jaehaerys and Shara have time to get involved with what's going on in the West, the War of Nine Kenny... Nine Kenny? <laughs> the War of Nine Penny Kings breaks out. And the West gets very involved. Sir Jason, who's still around, that's Joanna's father. And uh, Titus's younger brother, who's probably been one of the big complainers all this time. But he was sent to live at Feastfire, so he wasn't living at Cashley Rocks. So that might be why he was uh, also not there to complain about his brother's rule. He takes over the, the Western armies. He's sent to be the commander of, of the combined Westermen forces. But he dies of the flux on the island of Bloodstone. And the Red Lion takes over. The Red Lion was second in command. He's the greatest warrior in the West. He's probably a better fighter than Sir Jason, but lower, maybe lower ranked because he's a reign. Maybe there was some who should be in charge kind of business there. But anyway, Sir Jason's out of the picture. Red Lion takes over. This is a really big deal. Another setback for the Lannisters. You've got a powerful, like, energetic sort of more standard alpha type with Sir Jason. Jason was like a womanizer, a really aggressive, hyper, just kind of the more of the, in line with the traditional 
lordly male of these type of families in this era. This is what they what they quote want from their men. You know, I'm obviously not giving it the thumbs up, but you know what I mean. And uh, Nina suggests possibly that Tywin admired Jason. That was like, boy, I wish that guy was my dad. Now Tywin wasn't big on open sexuality. But still, the aggressiveness, the the pride, the ability to fight, the scorning of weakness that that is really more common with amongst highborn and especially Lannisters. Uh, that's the complete opposite in Taito. So yeah, I think uh, Tywin's probably like, yeah, I wish that guy was my dad instead. But the Red Lion taking over the Westman Force is a really big deal. You can't undersell the importance of looking up to a man who's leading you in battle, especially when he's doing it well. So the Red Line is winning a lot of loyalty from a lot of Westermen by leading them well in a hectic, hellish campaign. The War of Nine Kenny, Penny Kings. I did it again. War of Nine Kenny. I'm just going to call it that from now on. Yeah, is we this like South, about, is this a South Park joke? Yeah, no, but it'd be easy said the War of Nine Kenny Pings. Someone else with Nine Kenny G's. <laughs> I'm glad my mistakes are funny. <laughs> So yeah, it's a big deal. Like they're they're being. We heard Septon Maribal talk about how awful it was. We heard Kevin and Tywin, and even Tygit goes. I don't. This is one that really blows my mind. Tygit Lannister goes on this war, even though he's ten, <laughs> and he kills a knight of the Golden Company. So this is no ordinary ten-year-old. It's almost like if Tygit had survived, it would have been him doing what Gregor did. I, I think of it that way. I don't. I almost said I like to think of it that way, but I don't like to think of, of what happened to the Riverlands in that sense. But this this hardness, this, this brutality, this seeing the worst happen, seeing war in its most brutal fashion on the Stepstones uh, made the Red Lion tougher, made him more friends, more loyalty from the West in general. More people would look up to him. More people would see his capabilities and these young Lannister kids that were there, A, fought under him, B, also got a taste of that. They also got to to fight and, and see this nastiness, and it hardened them. It made them nasty and brutal in ways that they had a disposition, had a predisposition towards, but now it, it's in, it's real now. It's it's happened. So Tywin actually served with Ares. He was in Ares' retinue. During this war, because Ares fought in the Stepstones too, if you all recall, and he was knighted by him, meaning Tywin knighted Ares, if that's not clear. It wasn't the other way around, because Tywin was already a knight. Uh, by the way, of course, for more on this, we, uh, Stephen Atwell and, uh, and us, did two whole episodes on the War of Nine Penny Kings. So those are pretty good for extra information on this stuff. Kevin, of course, served directly with the Red Line because he was still his squire. Now, there must have been some positive relationship here between Kevin and the Red Line. What, what happens later is probably pretty sad for Kevin. The Red Line knights him. So that's yet another thing that he owes his honor to them. Now, remember, a lot of honor comes from the person that knights you. And eventually Kevin's going to be on the side of Tywin killing all these reigns, including the Red Lion. So I imagine Kevin had some mixed feelings about that. I'm, I also imagine he didn't let it show. <laughs> So imagine he didn't give Tywin even an inkling of that. <laughs> you know, if Tywin came just like, I'm sorry that we had to kill your squire. Of course, the word sorry didn't come out of his mouth, but he may have expressed that in a different way. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> throughout all of this, though, what do you think is happening while <laughs> the War of Nine Penny Kings is raging while they're fighting and dying and in basically in 
living in hell. Uh, well, meanwhile, back at Cashley Rock, Titos is predictably continuing to be a slacker. With most of the great lords away at war for the best part of two years, the ruler of the Westerlands in all but name became the lord who had stayed at home, Walderin Tarbeck, who was himself ruled by his wife, the Lady Ellen. <laughs> yep, so she's still not allowed to come to court. It's like she sent him as a proxy. She's probably got, like, runners going back and forth sending messages. <laughs> like, okay, what did he do today? It's like, okay, I want a rundown of everything that Titus did today. You know, give me a timestamps and... <laughs> all right, so now it's time for Tywin to be like, look, all right, I'm basically an adult now. He's still a teenager, but he's basically an adult by these standards. He's been in war. He's been at court. He's got a bunch of Westermen who have fought with him. He forms a small army out of this. He s puts Kevin in charge of it, sends him out into the realm, starts cleaning up the robber knights, starts dealing justice, starts doing what his father wasn't doing. He's got to be harsh about it. He probably would be anyway because he's Tywin, but he probably has to be because the reputation of Cashley Rock is weak. And Titus is technically still in charge. So he has to really show that, look, yeah, my father's still in charge, but I'm here now. I'm back. I'm at Castle Rock. I'm not at court anymore. And, as long, and, you know, you can push my dad around, but so can I. And I'm going to push him around into doing justice and ruling and restoring our authority. So what he did, it was, it was a, little, uh, a little unfair <laughs> because he would make this shakedown force that Nina calls it, which is a pretty good name for it. Again, it's kind of mafioso. He sends them door to door and he's like, all right, pay your debts and or uh, let my men stay here until they move on to the next castle to make them pay their debts. And Tywin knew that the Reigns and Tarbex were building up too. He, he knew this was happening. He had to know, or if he didn't know, he knew as he learned as soon as he returned. And so he had to do something about that. He's like, okay, they've gained a lot of power while I've been gone. My father has made our house weaker and they've gotten stronger. And this has gone on for a couple of years. So that's a lot of time for them to gain strength while the Lannisters lose strength. So he's, but the, of course, the, the, the thing he's got going for him is all these men that just experienced war. So he's got battle tested, hardened guys behind him that are pretty loyal to him. Uh, maybe he's a little worried that some of them are going to be Loyal to the Red Lion, but, you know, he's got some moves he can make. The the forced billeting of soldiers, the forced quartering of soldiers, that's in the U.S. Constitution that you can't do that. It's such a big deal. It, it kind of sounds like a, something from another era, which it is, but it was a really big deal in that former era. It was like a basically standard practice throughout most of history. And when an army comes to town, the locals have to put them up. Like, every house has to put a soldier or two in there. This happened throughout like almost every era of every culture, every country that had large-scale wars and standing armies. Rome, China, I mean, you go around these things, they're just, yeah, this is pretty normal. So that's why it was enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. It's probably in other constitutions and founding documents as well. I just am not as familiar with those. So yeah, in the American Revolutionary War, you could still do that. <laughs> like the, the laws of England applied. So yeah, you could just soldiers could be like, nope, you got to pay for these soldiers to stay here for a night. And if they abused your daughter, beat up your aunt, you had no recourse pretty much unless they were extremely 
uh, aggressive with it and you could prove it. And you, how are you going to prove it? Like the other soldiers aren't going to tell on their fellows. So it's really bad. It's part of the reason why they had to do away with that. So the reason I bring that up is because Tywin was forcing that on these vassals. It's like, you're going to take Kevin's men. You're going to put them up for the night. You're going to pay him. You're going to feed them. And then when they move on, you're not going to complain. That's what was happening there. So things are really coming to a head. A lot of vassals are like, they really don't like this. They see the situation that has been untenable for so long. It's finally coming to a head where the sort of pent up aggression is being spent now. And all this pride is really where it's going to clash, though, because you've got these two very powerful houses, one weak guy in between. And the thing that's driving them both as much as power is pride. And you'll see that based on the way the war goes, because bad decisions are made. Decisions that go, in one hand, I could be embarrassed. On the other hand, I'll die. <laughs> they pretty much always choose I'll die <laughs> over I'll be embarrassed, which is, goes to show just incredibly deep how pride and reputation runs with these powerful houses, these noble houses of Westeros, such as they are. Pride versus pride is pretty appropriate, though, considering it's Lion House versus Lion House. <laughs> That's nice. But Tywin and Ellen, I mean, oof. So in 261, Tywin just continues to just go over his father's head. He's like, I'm calling in the loans. Everyone pays me back now. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's usually not how loans work, right? Usually you're like, you, you agree to terms. You say, okay, well, I'll pay you back eventually or I'll pay you back a little bit at a time. Some of these are also like, surely these weren't contracts. A lot of them, they were just sort of understandings. So that's what Taiwan's operating. It's like, look, you got, we didn't have an agreement. So I'm making it. I'm telling you what the agreement is. And the agreement is you pay me back now. And of course, a lot of them couldn't because they were not expecting to have to. They were like, huh, it's Titus Lannister. What are you going to, what's he going to make you? This guy wouldn't do anything when they killed his uncle or his uncle-in-law. We don't actually know what Dennis Marbrand's relation to uh, Jane was because it's not, it's not Jane's father. Alan Marbrand was Jane's father. So Dennis was probably Alan's brother or something like that. Regardless, it doesn't change the picture or whatever his relation is. Incidentally, a small um, little extra Lannister detail comes up here. Kevin is in charge of this group that goes around. And by the way, two little anecdotes here. Jamie is like, be careful when you're out there hunting robber knights. Kevin looks at him like, I've been hunting robber knights since you were in small clothes. It's literally true. <laughs> it's like, actually, it's true before. It was before he was born. Kevin was out hunting robber knights before Jamie was born. So like, yeah, he doesn't need your advice, Jamie. This guy is well, well skilled and experienced in this. On his, rain, uh, on his rounds, though, he goes, he comes calling at Greenfield, the castle of House Swift. This is still Harry Swift was the man in charge even back then. The current master of coin for the Lannister regime. The guy with the chicken knight sigil that went to Bravos and hung out with the Black Pearl instead of getting loans from the Iron Bank. Because the Iron Bank's like, nah, we're not giving you money. It's funny that this man is the one that's master coin. We pointed out that he's not very smart or very tough before, which is reason enough. But this guy also was broke enough to be borrowing money from Titos, didn't have any money to pay Kevin. So when Kevin comes calling, he's like, will you accept my daughter instead? 
And they're like, yes, a hostage is fine. This woman turns out to be who Kevin marries. And according to Kevin's inner thoughts, he really does love her. They have a good marriage or loved her because he's dead. So that actually, well, silver lining, I guess, for a while there. It worked out for them as a couple. But Roger not only laughs at Tywin's declaration, Ellen also laughs at it. They not only refuse to pay any loans back, but they tell their vassals to refuse. So they not only are they insubordinate, but they order their subordinates to be insubordinate. So that's real bad. So this is more than just saying no. This is telling others to say no. This is not technically rebellion, but it's like they're standing on like their toe is like on the paint of the border there of that line of of rebellion of of that. So Walder and Tarbeck, not a smart guy, but a proud man comes to complain. Tywin throws him in jail. It's like, you don't complain, you pay. But Ellen counteracts this move by imprisoning Stafford and two Lannister cousins, two Lannisters of Lannisport. Now, Stafford, let's have a quote, a mashup quote from Ellen Rain and Jamie Lannister mixed together. How about that? Let's do that. Send back my lord and love, or these three shall answer for any harm that may come to him, Lady Ellen wrote to Casterly Rock. Wiser than her lord, she knew better than to come herself. Seriously. Young Tywin suggested his father oblige by sending back Lord Tarbeck in three pieces. Lord Titos was a gentler sort of lion, however, so Lady Tarbeck won a few more years for her mutton-headed lord, and Stafford wed and bred and blundered on till Oxcross. Yeah, Stafford is jo- Joanna's brother, uh, so Jason's son. You know, Tywin has mutton chops. He's the <laughs> mutton-headed one. <laughs> He's literally mutton-headed. <laughs> Good one. Uh, if you recall, Stafford is the one killed by Lord Rickard Karstark when Rob sneaks around the Golden Tooth with his army. And uh, yeah, they're they're caught unawares and Rickard lances Stafford well and they call him, remember, that's the one they call Uncle Dolt. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, Titus does step up. Titus is like, okay, no, I won't stand up to my vassals, but I'll stand up to my son. So he orders a reconciliation. And it takes place at Castamere. Like, he doesn't even have it at his place. He's like, no, we're going to do it at your place, which is usually the host is usually the one that's, like, kind of in charge. But no, they do it over at Castamere. Probably, maybe because Lady Ellen isn't allowed there. I don't know. But still, it was kind of another weakness and having it over at Castamere. And Tywin recognizes this. He refuses to go. He's like, no, I'm not going to this reconciliation. Reynard Rain is in charge of running it. He's the diplomat, the, the charismatic guy, the charmer. So he runs things. He's like the chief speaker or whatever you want to call it. A couple of uh, examples in parallel here. Nina suggests a historical one. March 25th, 1458, Lady Day. That is in the Catholic liturgical calendar, the Feast of the Annunciation. King Henry VI led a procession of nobles from each of the Yorkist and Lancastrian factions to St. Paul's Cathedral to hear a solemn mass of reconciliation. The event was known as a love day, although the love in love day wasn't used to imply romantic or even friendly feelings, but peace, which Henry VI really, really wanted the Lancasters and Yorks to be at peace. Of course, 
By now, you all are well aware that the Lancasters are the Lannisters and the Yorkists are the Starks in terms of historical influences from uh, the way George was working with. This is uh, this went so far as that Henry made them hold hands. <laughs> He's like made the the Earl of Salisbury was made to hold hands with the Duke of Somerset. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, yeah, so like, can you picture all these nobles? It's like it's like in, when you're in kindergarten and they're like, hold hands. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? Like, it's just an exercise. It doesn't make you hate the person that, that you're holding hands with any less. You just. You might hate the person making you hold hands, though. <laughs> I'm like, I don't hate like or hate you any less. But this person making us hold hands, I kind of don't like you now, too. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I don't know that works so well. Now, there's also a parallel in the dance. Maybe George was working, um, was aware of this one. He probably was. It's a famous event. So he wrote uh, this event for the dance and then maybe used similar ideas for the Rain Lannister reconciliation. Uh, the thing they all have in common is that they weren't truly reconciliations. War came to, again, to all three of these scenarios. Yeah, Viserys the first did have a, you know, blacks and greens sort of get together thing. It was in the year 120. It was at, uh, there was after the year 120, rather, they had the quarrel at uh, the year of the Red Spring. So he commanded his wife and daughter to kiss and exchange vows of love and affection, meaning his wife, Alicent, and his daughter, Rhaenyra, right? And as Gildane noted, their false smiles and empty words deceived no one but the king. <laughs> Viserys might have been pleased, but within a decade, his son and daughter were at war with each other. And it was a lot quicker here. This reconciliation was only about a year long. So, and it might have made Titos feel a little happy, but it's the same thing where he was the only one that felt good about it because he was the only one dumb enough to think it would work um, or just in his own little bubble. I mean, that's what I think. This is a really rich dude who just doesn't want to deal with tr problems. So I think living in a bubble is a pretty good way to put it. So yeah, it didn't last very long. Tywin, I mean, Tywin was looking to start something. He wanted this to become a war. He has his new army ready to go. He's, he's tired of this getting worse. He wanted to provoke them. That's why he called in the debts. You, that's what you do. You, he, he knew they wouldn't be able to pay. He was calling things to a head. And it just didn't work because Titos stepped in and forced this awkward, unworkable reconciliation. So Tywin just waits for that to end, waits a month or two, and lacking a more tangible justification like pay your debts, he says, come answer for your crimes. <laughs> he just sends a mass, it's like a mass message. Like, Cobran copying a bunch of people through email. He's like, okay, Reigns, Tarbex, all y'all, come to Castamere, I mean, come to Castley Rock and answer for your crimes. Like, what What crimes? They had committed some crimes, but, you know, they were stealing land like we saw with Lady Ellen. They were ordering their vassals not to pay back loans. Like, that's that's a crime, I think. Maybe not, a, maybe not treason, but it's a crime. I'm pretty sure you can't do that. <laughs> but still, this is the heir to Castley Rock. He just he doesn't actually have this authority, does he? Like Titos can order that and he can say I'm ordering this through my father and most people will probably listen to him because they're not going to assume Titos didn't give the order and they're not going to stand up to Tywin anyway cuz he's going to be lord of Castle Rock at some point. But when you're like Roger Rain or Ellen Tarback, you might be like you might be able to read between the lines and say technically he doesn't have this authority. 
technically we don't have to do this because he's this. But that's not how they went. That is not how that's not how they uh, rolled through this scenario. They were basically did what Tywin wanted them wanted them to do. Maybe because they thought he was wrong. They're like, well, he wants to provoke us. He's provoked us. It's on. And, you know, if you're the red lion, you're a badass. You're like, yeah, I'm, I would love to face this guy in the field. Cause yeah, I mean, the red lion would beat Tywin if it was one-on-one, but of course it won't be one-on-one. And here's where Tywin starts to show the things he learned. Here's where Tywin reveals the things that later became part of his reputation. And I don't mean just the extinction of these two houses. I mean, his military reputation in the field. What happens here is let pride take the wheel. (laughs) Tywin is aware, has his own pride. He's a very prideful man. He's also aware of how they operate. So when he comes out and says these things and orders them to answer for their crimes, he knows they can't just because of their proud people. They can't can't just ignore him. They can say no, but they can't just pretend he didn't say it, right? It's it's like the whole, what are you going to do about it? Like the way a plague schoolyard bully operates. Everyone's like, ooh, you can't just walk away from that. Well, you can, you can just walk away from that. You should just probably walk away from that. If they'll let you, maybe they'll just punch you in the back. But if the social structure allows for that, you should walk away. But the playground boys are like, no, you fight. You always, you don't back down. That's not what you do. This is that times a thousand. These are men with swords and, and women with agendas. And you, it's, it comes down to fighting because that's what they want it to come down to. And they both think they're the stronger one. It's kind of like when your son steals your car, if you're a dad or mom, and uh, they go out on a joyride. But in this case, it's like Tywin is taking the whole castle and the whole army out for a joyride. Because he just takes the army. He doesn't tell his dad. He's like, I'm taking the army. He doesn't tell him. He just takes the army. And his brothers go with him. That's another important clue here. Kevin goes with. Tygit goes with. Jerrion's still too young. So, again, they're siding with Ty- Tywin. And they, they like it. They want this. I don't know if they, uh, Jenna will later say she didn't approve of his methods, all of his methods, but she really liked having an older brother that would stand up for her and she, and they needed that at the time. So things look different on the inside of this Lannister family. Tywin wasn't, uh, wasn't such a bad guy yet at this point. And even to some of them, he never seemed like a bad guy. Doesn't change how I feel about him in the whole, but it does change how I think about how other people think about him. So it worked, though. His, his provocation worked. They, uh, they didn't try to smooth things over. The, the attack on, his, on their pride worked. They outright declared rebellion. And, uh, well, the first prideful man to fall was Lord Tarbeck. And, well, here's what happened. Secure in his own strength and that of his numerous friends and allies, Lord Walderin had oft been heard to boast that he had... No fear of lion cubs, but the Lannister host descended on him so quickly that his vassals and supporters had no time to gather. Foolishly, his lordship rode forth to meet Ser Tywin's host with only his household knights beside him. In a short, brutal battle, the Tarbecks were broken and butchered. Lord Walder and Tarbeck was wounded and taken alive, with two of his sons from his second marriage, The only surviving son from his first marriage had died during the battle. Well, you have us, boy, 
Lord Tarbeck told Sir Tywin when he was led before him. We're worth a good ransom, as I'm sure you know. Ask what you will, my lady wife will pay. With our own gold, Sir Tywin reportedly replied. No, my lord, I think not. Whereupon he gave a command and watched cold-eyed as Lord Tarbeck and his sons were beheaded, together with his nephews and cousins, his daughter's husbands, and any man who displayed the seven-pointed blue and silver star upon his shield or surcoat to boast of Tarbeck blood. When the Lannister host resumed its march to Tarbeck Hall, the heads of Lord Walderin and his sons went before them, impaled on spears. Whoa, yeah, the old heads-on-spears move. Okay, so a couple things. Lord Walderin is real slow on the uptake, isn't he? The wallowing, wa- whatever they called him, <laughs> whatever Lord Toad called him, he's not bright. I mean, walrus, first of all. I think, right? Yeah, wallowing walrus, that's right. Wallowing walrus Walderin. No fear of lion cubs. Okay, so that's a boast. That's probably bravado. But you, but when it comes to actually fight, this is the example I gave before. Okay, run away or die. I mean, he actually stood and fought when Tywin was outnumbering him. Probably because he thought this would happen. He's like, oh, no, they're not going to actually kill me. He calls Tywin boy to his face after being captured. Like, that's just dumb. <laughs> right? I mean... Still trying to talk down to him, still trying to be proud, trying to lord over Tywin, even when you're on your knees beaten. Like, just don't do that. I mean, that's just, you really need to know when to quit, and you needed to quit well before that, Mr. Tarbeck. So the first and best amongst a very short group of examples that are about to come all one by one here in succession of people taking Tywin Lannister too lightly, that will result in... Forevermore, very few people taking Tywin Lannister too lightly. There'll still be a couple, (laughs) but they're rare. And the thing is here, what they didn't count on was that we mentioned that Tywin was trying to provoke them. He was aiming to start a war here, to make things come to head, to prove that they were stronger. So he was prepared. His army was ready to go. He probably started massing it before he issued the resolution, before he made his demand. So as soon as they said no, he could start marching right away. Like, okay, rather than they say no, okay, get the army together. No, the second they said no, he probably started marching because they were already ready to go because he knew they would say no. And they didn't know, see it that way because he caught them off guard. Their men weren't ready. So they got outplayed. They got outplayed badly. And they didn't see it. They didn't adjust to really. They didn't go, oh, wow, he he outplayed us. He got the jump on us. We need to do something different. No, they just went down with the ship. They just kept going. Let's follow it up here. Um, Yeah, what happens next is he takes his army to the castle, um, you know, marches with the spears um, and the heads and uh, destroys... Uh, you know, expe- she expects a siege. Alan's like, yeah, we'll chill here. We'll, uh, we'll hold you, hold back, hold you back and, um, wait for my brothers to arrive and my brothers will beat you. That, that was her thinking basically. Maybe she, uh, thought that it would go sort of like how it went with Dennis Marbrand where they would catch him unawares and trap him between them or something like that. Some form of pride and arrogance was in play here. And they just didn't understand that Tywin had changed the rules. Even though he changed the rules multiple times, they kept expecting him to play by the rules. They expected him to hold them for ransom. No, 
They expect a siege. No, he storms the gates immediately. He sure, he sends Sir Kevin ahead because, well, Kevin's a little better negotiating maybe because they don't hate each other so much. But here's what happens. When Sir Kevin Lannister approached under a peace banner to demand her surrender, she laughed at him and said, You are not the only lions in the West, sir. My brothers are coming, and their claws are just as long and sharp as yours. They are not, actually. They might be just as long and sharp. Actually, maybe they are just as long and sharp, but there's a lot fewer of them. (laughs) A lot fewer. And yeah, so this was another bad move. Now, I don't know what she could have expected from surrendering. Tywin might have been pretty brutal to her anyway. Uh, maybe, Maybe he would have done what he did to her daughters, which was send them to the Silent Sisters. So that's... Uh, that's a famous line, of course. It's in the lyrics to Reigns of Castamere, and it's the last quote we'll have from her. It's all the truth she'll know. Uh, low on defenders, but still big on pride and defiance. It's also suggested or hinted at that maybe Tywin bribed some people. You know, the gold of Cashley Rock is, is a powerful weapon, and Tywin is well aware of that, and he has been aware of it for some time. So he may have said, look, abandon them now, get back with us. And it'll be like nothing happened. Just don't come to battle. Don't support them. You know, something like that. Just a few greased palms. And that might be a few hundred fewer soldiers showing up on the rain side. Some greased paws. Greased paws. Yes, with yeah. lions. You're right. It has to be greased paws. Or hooves with the with house bracks and their unicorns. So, uh, so she, yeah, so she expected a siege, but nope, didn't happen. Tywin assaults right away, in, including trebuchets. He's, he's trying to damage the castle. That's unusual, too, because this is their vassal. You don't usually destroy your own vassals because these vassals under normal circumstances would be paying you tribute and sending you soldiers. So you don't want to destroy them. This is only something that happens under extreme circumstances. And Ellen didn't think they were that extreme. She did not think things had progressed that far. It's something that something that Sean referenced uh, during our Dunkin' Egg coverage. The person that wins a fight is the first person to realize that you're actually in a fight. Surely those soldiers who were killed knew they were in a fight, but these lords and ladies thought this was just a pushback. You know, they thought, oh, ransoms, this sort of business. We never suffer the full consequences. Maybe our, maybe our soldiers do. Maybe our common folk do, but we don't care about them. Uh. No, the rules had changed. The situation had changed. They were still playing by the old rules. They were still thinking Titos is in charge. They're thinking centuries of, you can get away with these things. There's always forgiveness. You can always bend the knee and ask for forgiveness. No, not to Tywin. Tywin did give you the chance to bend the knee, but he only gives you that one chance. You don't don't get multiple chances. And this is young Tywin who's even more aggressive than older Tywin. Older Tywin's still pretty bad. Very bad. We'll talk about that at the end. Aftermath. Tion Tarbeck and Ellen Tarbeck Rain are killed in the same moment when the roof collapses on their head, thanks to the trebuchet. And Tywin's treatment of the Tarbecks inside the castle was basically a continuation of what he did to them after beating them in the field. Lady Ellen's elder daughter, Rohan, was mother to a three-year-old son remembered in the songs as the last Lord Tarbeck. The boy disappeared the day of the battle, never to be seen again. Those of a romantic bent believe that he was smuggled from the burning castle in disguise, grew to manhood across the narrow sea, and became a bard famed for his sad ballads. 
More reliable reports suggest that he was thrown down a well by Sir Amory Lorch, though whether this was done at the behest of Sir Tywin or without his knowledge remains in dispute. This is the same remains in dispute. We didn't know. Did Tywin order the death of Elia and her children? Oh, I don't know. Gregor might have just done it. Armory Larch might have just killed Rhaenys Targaryen on his own without being ordered by him. Yeah, right. <laughs> you don't kill high-value prisoners without permission from your lord like that. Uh, uh-uh. Especially when a lord like Tywin, who is very specific. And and you do not overstep your authority with a man like Tywin, who is very keen on protecting the exact parameters of his authority, which is, you know, all of it, pretty much. So this is this is like a little in-joke, a black humor, basically, dark humor, morbid humor, <laughs> where I was like, yeah, sure, he didn't know. Yeah, right. But remember who wrote The World of Ice and Fire? I don't mean George R. R. Martin. Yes, George R. R. Martin wrote it. But this book is an in-world book meant to be given to Robert, then scratched out, meant to be given to John. Nope, scratched out, meant to be given to Tom. And this was for the Lannister regime. The author, when George was writing this, he he had that in mind. Like, okay, this was written with Tywin as a contemporary. So you're not going to say insulting things about Tywin in a book written while he's alive. <laughs> like, a guy writing the history of Tywin would not make that mistake, given he's he's well aware of what Tywin does to people who step out of line. So... Rohan and Sorel made to join the Silent Sisters. So yeah, if Amory Lorch, if ever a man deserved that bear pit, he's multiple child murders on his record. Nina suggests it's possible this is like Amory Lorch's father, like the Amory Lorch that killed Rhaenys was Amory Lorch Jr. and this was his dad. That's entirely possible. I mean, we, we see family names repeated quite often. So yeah, like father, like son, baby killer. Maybe that makes sense. But it, it could be the same guy easily. Uh, maybe that he was just really young then or something, but because he is a lot, he is older in A Song of Ice and Fire, but not old, old. So anyway, yeah, it, it, good chance it's his dad or something, because that would be a lot longer. Well, I, I probably, but just if we're saying it's a difference of 40 years, then you can be 60 years old and, and be the field captain. Yeah, and he didn't appear to be that old, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he doesn't maybe appear to be 60. Yeah. But that is what he would have to be, essentially. He would, he would have to be about yeah. 60 he would, years yeah. old, right? He would, if, he, if he was like 16 as a night, which is possible, he yeah. would still be 56, which yeah, is exactly. Tywin's age, and he didn't seem like he was Tywin's age. Yeah, he, does, he doesn't Yeah, he doesn't give you that impression. Interesting. So it's, just, it's the Lorch thing to do. That should be their sigil, is d- dead children, you know. So, yeah, so I don't know what Ellen could have done differently other than maybe surrender because she had no better choice, but certainly the end result was was probably worse than surrendering. Tywin had what was left of Tarbeck Hall put to the torch, leaving a, quote, blackened shell. The Red Lion showed up just in time to see the castle in flames. His army was outnumbered given the short time he'd had to prepare. And like I said, Tywin had to jump on him with preparation there. And his men were tired because they were hurrying to get there. They knew that time was short. But the Red Lion was a temperamental, hot-headed type, and he, he hoped the element of surprise would work. Well, let's see what happened. Here's a quote. The battle that ensued was a closer thing than might have been expected, for the Lannisters had not formed up, and the suddenness of the attack took them by surprise. If Lord Rain had only had more heavy horse, his knights might well have been able to cut their way through to where Ser Tywin's banister flew above his command tent. But there was too much distance to cover, and too many men between them. 
and after the first shock, the Lannisters recovered quickly, whereupon their numbers soon began to tell. Tywin Lannister himself led the counterattack. His charge blunted, Lord Rain had no choice but to wheel and flee, and he left near half his men dead upon the field. A rain of crossbow boats... <laughs> boats? <laughs> A rain of crossbow bolts chased his riders from the camp. One took Lord Rain between the shoulders, punching through his backplate. Though not a mortal wound, the quarrel went deep enough to draw blood. The Red Lion rode on, swaying in his saddle, only to fall from his horse less than half a league away. He had to be carried back to Castamere. Shades of Caldrogo there, an arrow falling from your horse. Yeah. Oh, was that an in-joke by George there? A rain of crossbow bolts chased his riders from the camp. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Good one, George. You know, Aziz, I would say this quarrel did go deep enough to draw blood. <laughs> a lot of blood. Nice. It goes back many years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, the unabridged chapter indicates that had he been able to pull together his full army, it could have been as many as 8,000, which is really big. Uh for a non-main house, and it's it's pretty big anyway. But I think even though this was a desperate charge, a desperate attack, maybe a headstrong, some might call it ill-considered, I think it might have been necessary. Because had word spread of the sacking of Tarbeck Hall and the death of Ellen and Waldron and others, the Reigns wouldn't have been able to marshal their remaining support. The, everybody else would have abandoned them. It's not like they were following the Reigns because they loved them. This isn't like the Starks where people are going to be like, let's restore the Reigns. We love you. No, the Reigns weren't good guys here. Tywin's not a good guy either, but there really aren't the good guys here. These are just power-hungry jerks going at each other. Another reason we compare it to the Dance of the Dragons. <laughs> and uh, that's especially true if Tywin was going to bribe some of them or take the advantage, take the opportunity to bribe more. He's like, look, you're losing. Let me give you a little money. Just don't show up. Come back into the fold. Right? Like, a lot of them would be like, that's a deal they can't pass up. He's paying us to surrender <laughs> rather than fighting to the death, you know? If word had spread, and Tywin would have wanted word to spread, right? This He's trying to restore their reputation. So saying, look, we just beat the guys who were pushing back against us the most. That's exactly the sort of news he wants to spread. So that's why, arguably, Roger Rain's plan was correct. Because if he lets time pass opportunity is gone entirely this may not have been much of an opportunity but waiting would have removed all the opportunities so whether it was a calculation or a desperate charge or a bit of both well it went the way it did tywin followed them to find the rain brothers holed up inside castamere and to go alongside the red lion's hole in his back <laughs> and they called for more friends the rains did but as we said nope no one was helping the rains found themselves all alone all of a sudden, they, they had gained so much and fell so fast. So since Roger's plan of action didn't work, Reynard, a man of words, came to the fore. Reynard still didn't learn from these lessons, still playing the same game the rest of them were playing, even though he's smarter than the others, apparently. He still tried to act like these were the old days where you could just say sorry, do some negotiating, and yeah, he he offered terms, but they were wildly aggressive. Uh, you might be able to understand 
that he felt secure in some ways, given what's revealed in this quote. But still, I'd say he made a mistake here. You judge for yourself. Designed for defense, the mines at Castamere had never been taken. There were only three ways down into them, all cramped, narrow, twisting, and studded with deadfalls, pits, and murder holes. Two armored knights, standing side by side, could hold the largest tunnel against a thousand, for attackers had no way around, and if they tried to cut their way past, defenders would be pouring boiling oil and pitch down on them from murder holes above as they fought. Once all his folk were safe inside the tunnels, Ser Raynard sent word to Ser Tywin above, offering terms. You cannot fight your way in, and we have food and water sufficient for three years, he wrote, but grant us full pardon for any past offenses, and send your brothers down to us as hostages against deceit, and we shall once again be your true and leal servants. Asking for hostages? For his brothers? I mean, I know it's standard to start negotiations by asking for a lot and then backing down, meeting in the middle. But again, this guy wasn't negotiating. He was like, you surrender or that's it. That was his negotiation. You can surrender or no. There's no terms here. They just didn't get it. They didn't get the level Tywin was operating at. They didn't understand his mindset. They didn't see that he was super determined to restore their glory and they didn't want to weigh that against their own need to be proud and powerful. He didn't take the Tarbex hostage. He destroyed Tarbex Hall. But Reynard's like, yeah, let's negotiate. Hmm. So he should have gone to his knees. He should have begged. Maybe that wouldn't have worked, but it was his only chance. Maybe he didn't even have that chance, but he definitely didn't have this chance, <laughs> the one that he took. So yeah, Tywin, 19 years old at the time. He did seem pretty bent on making an example out of them. Maybe he could have made an example out of them in a way that allowed them to still live. But that's not the way it happened. And here we go. The name of the song and why it is what it is. The Reigns of Castamere. Here's what happened. Tywin Lannister commanded that mines be sealed. With pick and axe and torch, his own miners brought down tons of stone and soil, burying the great gates to the mines one by one, until there was no way in and no way out. Once that was done, he turned his attention to the small, swift stream that fed the crystalline blue pool beside the castle from which Castamere took its name. With thousands of men on hand and no foe to face, it took less than a day to dam the stream and only two to divert it to the nearest mine entrance. The earth and stone that sealed the mine had no gaps large enough to allow a squirrel to pass, let alone a man. But the water found its way down. Sir Raynard had taken more than 300 men, women, and children into the mines, it is said. Not a one emerged. A few of the guards, assigned to the smallest and most distant of the mine entrances, reported hearing faint screams and shouts coming from beneath the earth one night, but by daybreak, the stones had gone silent once again. And not a soul to hear indeed. Damn. So that is, if you were unclear on why the rains, why it's the rains of Casimir, it's like, oh, it's the rains because the house rain. But no, this is what George is referring to. These little crevices that the water trickled through would be drip, 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 drip until the entire place was flooded. It would have taken a while. It would have been awful. Like the, the mental version of the Chinese water torture where instead of dripping on you, 
you just know it's coming and it's coming very slowly and there's nothing you can do about it. It's like yeah, it's not drowning what you in slow motion. Yeah, it's not what you picture, which is like a torrent of, of, of water coming in and drowning them all. It's Yeah, it's slow. Yeah, it's bad. It's really awful to think about. So let's not think about it too much. But you understand why it weighs so heavily in the realm because this song is written about this and, and the people in the world know the context. They know the story of the mines and the dripping and the lake being dammed. And yeah, that's awful. Uh, uh, Nina writes, of all of Tywin's war crimes, and there are many, this is perhaps one of the very worst. Tywin hears Reynard's attempts at negotiating the surrender he knows that he's facing a castle with women, children, and non-combatants and wounded people who didn't do him any harm, who didn't stand up to him, who didn't tweak his nose, who didn't pull his father's tail. But nope, kill them. Kill them all. He could have bribed someone there. He might be, he, yeah, he may have bribed people at Tarbeck Hall. He could have done things, yeah. But he, that wouldn't have accomplished his goal. He wanted this. He wanted this message. He wanted this in his track record forever. Uh, he wanted people to never step up to them again, at least not any time soon, because this would be there to remind them of what happens. As we said with the opening quote, Lord Farman became truculent. All it took was a singer. Tywin didn't have to send negotiators. He didn't have to send swords. He didn't have to send anything. Just a singer and this song. And that was enough. And wow. Yeah, so considering what Nina said there, uh, as far as weighing Tywin's war crimes, yeah, it's really bad. I guess the sacking of King's Landing is worse. There are more innocents killed there. And even worse, the, the Riverlands, probably. There are probably even more innocents killed in the Riverlands over the taking of Tyrion. So, yeah, Tywin didn't exactly decide never to go back to that playbook. He's entirely willing to do things like this anytime. It's maybe not his first choice, but he'll do it. He never won't scruple at all. So House Tarbeck's kind of more forgotten than House Rain because they're kind of overshadowed, you know, the song. The song doesn't mention Tarbeck. It, it mentions Rain. But hey, that's Rain. It's, it's you know, the word is right there. Tarbeck is just not as, it's not as melodious. <laughs> the following year, Tywin becomes Hand. Ares is like, I like you. You were already, they were already friends, right? They fought beside each other and he saw how the realm uh, of the West, meaning uh, the, the Western realm, was restored by Tywin's actions. Ares doesn't mind that he was brutal and nasty about it. That's, that's fine. This is the kind of guy I want hand. Tywin is a little more willing to accept surrender in the future, but only a little. He's still kind of like, you get one chance to surrender and then that's it. Uh, he's a little milder towards the, the nobles in particular, some of the lessons he learned here probably would be that, yeah, well, now he doesn't have the reins on his side anymore. He doesn't have a powerful second house to, like, help him. But he's just as bad towards commoners. He doesn't have any additional regard towards them, just as it was for King's Landing. He was willing to sack Duskendale. That was just Sir Barristan saved everyone's butt there. Except that he didn't because Ares being king longer probably caused more deaths. Anyway, that's something for our Duskendale episode that's already in the bag. So check that one out if you haven't. And of course, Jamie, as I said at the beginning, Jamie hears Tywin and uh, or hears about the reigns of Castamere mentioned a lot because he's the son of Tywin and everybody wants to wants to bring it up. For example, we're going to close this out with a few quotes of conversations during A Song of Ice and Fire where the reigns of Castamere comes up and we'll discuss the context a little bit as we pass through these. Starting off with Lady Jenna to Jamie. Men say that Tywin never smiled 
but he smiled when he wed your mother and when Ares made him hand. When Tarbeck Hall came crashing down on Lady Ellen, that scheming bitch, Tig claimed he smiled then. And he smiled at your birth, Jamie. I saw that with mine own eyes. You and Cersei, pink and perfect as alike as two peas in a pod. Well, except the legs. What lungs you had. Hear us roar. Jamie grinned. So I love that this story about the reigns of Castamere includes hear us roar because it's the line because you know it's their words and all that <laughs> so it's like you got the the sigil it's like what lannisters stand for and that is that's so accurate it's so it's so fitting that this is what uh it all came down to right the one roars were louder than the others <laughs> meaning the lannisters louder than the reigns not jamie and cersei <laughs> now let's 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 source that out here Nina says, it says it all about Tywin, that the day of his marriage, his birth of his two elder sons, and the day he committed a war crime is some of the happiest days of his life. And to make it worse, that one was first. Of all those four times that he smiled, the first one was Ellen's death. That was in the year 261. The hand naming was the following year in the year 262. Marriage to Joanna was the year after that, 263. Jamie and Cersei's birth was five years after, after this, so 266. So all four of those smiles came in a five-year period. <laughs> but again, you can almost see why Tywin was so aware. It was, like, it was like, finally, I'm done with her, this threat to my family. Like, yeah, Tywin, there's a lot more to it than that. And again, I'm not going to ever call Tywin a good guy. But what a relief to finally get rid of this woman that was really a big problem she was a powerful enemy I mean, and she was legitimately trying to steal or take stealing may not be the right word i don't know i don't know how to contextualize power that should never be held in the first place but it was, the power was held and they were taking it and so tywin's like no that's ours <laughs> Titos's vassals didn't give many trouble afterwards because yeah that's, tywin wasn't lord yet let's not forget tywin wouldn't become lord of cashley rock for another six years um, so the status quo was still there with a weak Lord, but they knew, okay, well, if you mess with the Lannisters now, that kid is going to be the one you, you're going to answer to. So even though Titus is there, you can't pull the lion's tail anymore. I mentioned this before that when, when the reigns were at their worst, no one came to help them because no one really liked them. They were just following them because they were stronger. It was following the stronger of the two might makes right. People restore the Starks are trying to restore the Starks because they love them. The Starks ruled well. People, they engendered the type of feelings that make people say, yeah, we want more of that. We wanted it so badly that we're willing to fight to bring it back. But when the Lannisters switched the reins or the reins switched the Lannisters, it's not about loyalty. It's about survival. It's about staying on the winning side. No one's like, the Starks were better. The Lannisters were better. The Lannisters were more just and more fair. Eh, well, not in this era. If the Lannisters are removed in A Song of Ice and Fire, if the story ends with them gone or significantly reduced, it's still this. It's because of this. They're not loved. They're feared. It's the consummate story of Tywin Lannister, the consummate summation of who he is as a person. Fear over love. He scorns love. His father wanted to be loved. And that's why he's so obsessed about this dichotomy is because it worked so poorly from his perspective, a perspective formed when he was a young child. So that's part of why he's so hardcore and harsh about it is these opinions, they, they form during his formative years. A summary here I'd like to point out is that 
Tywin was like the best at this. Tywin's the best at might makes right. This cycle of killing the weak, making the strong. And it still didn't work. Even the best at it, Tywin, even him, the most successful, arguably, at this style of ruling and living, it still didn't leave his family in a good place, which really just is one of the ultimate statements on how terrible the system is. Let's take a lesson from another good man, shall we? How about Roose Bolton? That's a good person, right? That's someone we can really learn from. Well, actually, when Roos talks about power and, and things like that, he's he's insightful. He's intelligent. We're not going to we're not going to invite him to parties. We're not going to think of him as a good man either. But his insights are still useful. Here we go. Talking to Jamie. Our goat should have consulted the Tarbex or the Reigns. They might have warned him how your Lord Father deals with betrayal. There are no Tarbex or Reigns, said Jamie. My point precisely. Hmm. Yes. But yet, Roos is also not listening to the same lesson. He's not learning the same lesson that Tywin is learning in retrospect, that his family is learning in place of him now that he's gone. Just as the Boltons are probably doomed, they've reached for power. They got it. They have Winterfell. It's probably going to kill them, though. Same as the Reigns. They reached too high and ended up far below where they started. The Boltons may be completely gone after A Song of Ice and Fire. The Reigns are completely gone. So isn't it kind of ironic that they were safer in the time when they were striving for the power than they were after they achieved it? They were even safer before even striving for it. But it got worse the closer they got to the power that they thought would make them safe. The closer they got to it, the more dangerous it actually was. The Boltons were probably better off never having this opportunity to topple the Starks because it's probably not going to pay off. It's probably going to kill them all. You know, they took a chance to gain more power and going to probably backfire pretty horribly. So the cyclical nature of devastation wrought by this endless pursuit of power, it's striking the Lannisters. It's a big lesson here. The Reigns are the ones who suffered in the past, but it's, it's cycling into the Lannisters. The, it happened to one pride of lions, and it's going to happen to the next pride of lions, and for the same basic reasons, the pursuit of power, the maintenance of pride, putting it above all other things. It's a cycle of violence that never ends, which brings us to another great quote, another example of Jamie. My father says there will never be an end to it. There could be. How, my lord? The old wounds never heal, my father says. My father had a saying, too. Never wound a foe and you can kill him. Dead men don't claim vengeance. Their sons do, said Hoster apologetically. Not if you kill the sons as well. Ask the Casterleys about that if you doubt me. Ask Lord and Lady Tarbeck or the reigns of Castamere. Ask the Prince of Dragonstone. For an instant, the deep red clouds that crowned the western hills reminded him of Rhaegar's children, all wrapped up in crimson cloaks. Is that why you killed all the Starks? Not all, said Jamie. Exactly. If you can't kill them all, <laughs> boy, those few that are left really want to kill you. And even if you do kill them all. Ruthless, unsentimental, determined, hardworking, smart, and it still didn't work. Jamie, Jamie's father was all those things. Jamie's journey as a character is, is in part learning this, the learning that his father, despite being the best of the best at this style of rule, the alpha in the Westerosi system, it still screwed their family over. It still messed them up. It wasn't good. Being the best at might makes right in the pursuit of power doesn't erase the downsides. Like Stannis said, the good deeds don't wipe out the bad. And those 
weren't really good deeds anyway. They were skilled and efficient. Tywin was effective, but not good. Even when you wipe out an entire, entire family to, to protect yourself, that slaughter is part of your family's history. It's on you. It's your psyche. It's on your soul. Even if you somehow are the type of person that can go to sleep at night after wiping out a family, your ancestors know. Other families know. It's a, permanently a part of that history. Yeah, they think it makes them safe, but I think ironically it hasn't. It's made them less safe. Yeah, you, you don't want to mess with the Lannisters. It, it does send that message. Mess with the Lannisters and look what will happen to you. But it also sends the message that if you have a chance to get rid of these psychopaths, you better do it. <laughs> if you have a chance, if they, if they crack, if there's a weakness in that foundation, best remove them because you don't want them around. You don't want a psychopath bloody neighbor if you can get rid of them. Most of the time, you just don't have the ability to get rid of them. That's how we usually deal with the worst is we just, we, we just have to live with them because we can't deal with them. But if you do have a chance to get rid of them, you take it. And that's the danger that Tywin has set his house up for. The Lannisters are feared. And yes, that means people won't mess with them when the Lannisters are strong. But you will engender all the aggression if you are weak and evil. Because they'll take that chance to remove you from the board forever, as they should. It's almost like a moral imperative. If you can get rid of a psychopath from this planet someone that can kill other people and you have an easy way to do it you probably should you know and that's what we're faced with here uh the lannisters have been doing this for a long time they've shown the way that tywin tried to take power from the baratheons is super similar to what the reigns were trying to do to his family faking children remarrying people savage revenge Trying and failing, then not just the Baratheons. Before that, Tywin was trying to connect his family to the Targaryens. The same way that the Reigns were trying to inroad with the Lannisters, he was trying to inroad with the Targaryens. The way the Reigns pushed around Gerald and Tytos reminds us of Cersei and Tywin pushing around Robert Baratheon. The Red Lion was drowned, but the crossbow might have done him in anyway. So this is a slower version of what killed Tywin. He was killed by a crossbow bolt too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the front instead of the back. But what's the difference? There isn't really one when you when you come down to it. It doesn't really matter when you're dying, whether the crossbow bolt got you in the front or the back. You're still dying. You're dying for the same reasons. As for Ellen, she was crushed in the death of the collapse of her castle. Probably not the fate uh, for Cersei, because that because you know we still think Valonqar strangling. But it is what happened on the show. She was crushed in a collapsing castle there, so. It works as a parallel for the show anyway, and it could be like a metaphor. That's always been a possibility. I know, I know for a lot of you feel the same way, that the metaphor of strangling Cersei, or that strangling Cersei might be metaphorical, that it might not be like Jamie's hands actually around her throat, if not someone else. But I still think it's Jamie, but like Jamie's actions, you know, leading to this. Still, we'll wait and see. It'll be interesting, and we'll probably see a few more parallels along the way. We are certainly prepared for them. So we started this with the Red Wedding, and so shall we close this out. I know nothing of Tarbeck Hall or their lands being restored. As far as we know, it's still just a ruin. But Castamir was given to Rolf Spicer for Ty by Tywin for his family's role in the Red Wedding. That's Sybil Spicer's brother. The Castamir mines might be exhausted. It's unclear. It did say that the gold ran out in some of those places, but it wasn't. It was also said that the Great John captured the gold mines of Castamir during the War of Five Kings. So maybe they have new ones. It's not clear. Either way, it's more destructive if, if they were a more functional house with wealth than it would have been otherwise because 
Eh, either way, it's true, though, <laughs> Tywin's from Tywin's perspective. And regardless, since they didn't loot the castle, lots of wealth would be down there, stored in that underground fortress. I mean, usually when a castle is taken over and the family's put to the sword, the, the powerful lords that are there, like, divvy up the wealth, they take whatever they can. They clearly couldn't do that here, though. The mines were damned. There's no one ever went back down there. And no one, no victorious army captured the spoils. So while a lot of the valuables would be destroyed by the flooding and the crushing and all that, the work to recover it would be extensive. It can be done. There's gemstones down there. There's gold and silver. And the bones of the dead of House Rain. You might even find a suit of plate mail with a hole in the back from where that crossbow bolt killed the red lion. Well, I didn't kill him, but took him out. <laughs> Almost killed him. It's only been 40 years, so, you know, that might still be there. And we had that quote earlier that so-called Last Lord Tarbeck, the baby that was probably killed by Amory Lorch. Rohan and Sorrel were sent to the Silent Sisters. They might still be alive. Of course, at their age, they can't exactly continue the house, especially after taking Silent Sister vows. But one or both of them could still be alive now. Can you imagine they're there at Tywin's funeral? They're one of the silent sisters. They could that, be the ones that, <laughs> that are that, dressing his body. Yeah. For that. <laughs> that would be amazing. I actually didn't think of that possibility that they're there. They're ones that like stuffed him full of the stinky ears. Like, boy, that corpse went so stank. That's because Rohan and Sorrel Rain <laughs> were the silent sisters that tended his body. Yeah. Because they're about his age. So like he didn't die of old age. He could have lived another however long. They could definitely be alive. I mean, they have to hate him too. Oh, God, yeah. Like, I mean... They would have loved to hear about how he died. Like his own son killed him. Yeah, that's what you get. And then they hear about all these other things happening. They're like, yeah, stupid Lannisters. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, yep, yep. Okay, well, that does it for today. I hope you all enjoyed The Reigns of Castamere. It's a big story, contained story. Not a lot of characters, but a lot of familiar characters. I really like it, and it, it, it really adds a lot to the main story because it adds a lot to Tywin, adds a lot to Cersei and Jaime and Tyrion and Jenna and these other characters. I uh, was really glad we did this. Hope you, had, hope you are too. Another quote or another comment from someone. Last party. Castamere's mine shafts would be useless from water damage and 40 years of neglect. They might even collapse if they were reopened. Tywin gave the Spicers a worthless castle as a slap in the face. It's possible. I mean, the land is still there, though. They could build a castle on that land. That acreage has value, even if you can't get anything out of those mines. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not worthless. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's any chance that there's still no plant worth. There's still worth stuff. there. Yeah. It's just not maybe as, as much worth as, as you might think. They could never, they're unlikely to ever get anywhere near the power of the reins. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a, there, a nice, useful household could be built there with some men to send, some tax revenue. But yeah, nothing, nothing like what it was before. Um, but maybe there's some value to be extracted out of some of those mines. Nothing, probably nothing too substantial, but, you know, might be worth it. Anyway, appreciate the comments. Uh, again, I want to remind you all that we will be at uh, Worldcon. This is this episode is recording here on um, the 12th of December, 2021. We will be at Worldcon the following week. And yeah, in December. January 1st, 2022, we'll be starting with the World of Ice and Fire, Valerie Reedus, weekly, back to weekly Sundays. But yes, you can send us a message, an email, join on Discord, whatever, to reach us about Worldcon, December 15th to 20th in Washington, D.C. We'll be bopping around a little bit. 
Yeah, and in, if not there, then other cons. You know, keep us in mind for when Las we're going to be in your city for uh, if you're going to be or if you're traveling to one of the conventions. We'd love to meet you all face to face if the uh, situation permits it. Yes, February Las Vegas Got Con. That's right, and of course, as usual, April Ice and Fire Con. But you've heard of us talk about that one before, so that's kind of a recurring one. Maybe you didn't know it was coming back because uh, you know, of COVID, but this, it is. We didn't bring this up, but this is kind of a random little funny thing. But um, our first convention, we were talking about Con Carolinas, right? Where um, we got our stuff signed. We met um, Tara, who runs Ice and Fire Con. Aziz had been familiar with her a little bit before through a friend, but she just like happened to be at that con too. So I yeah, met her right. well before that uh, con. And um, we also met some other friends who go to Ice and Fire Con. It was it set everything off. So yeah, I really can't shout recommend out to Jasmine and Brian any convention and enough. Yeah. Ice and Fire Con is you know our favorite, but really we made so many friends even just from that one one Con Carolina. So I hope to see some of you at WorldCon. Yep, and that is hopefully uh, encouragement to to come to future cons. It's it's. Finding okay. your family, folks. Your Are we going to play your family. song, too, Aziz? We shall. As I'm giving some thanks and, and some mentions here, we can, we'll can we close out today's episode it. with my recording of The Reigns of Casimir. I recorded it, what was it, like four years ago? Six years ago. Six years ago. Six years ago. It's not the first time we've shared it, but how could we not put it in this episode? It's The Reigns of Casimir. That's how I start it. Uh, almost. Let me do okay. this. Let me start the, um, oh. let me do the mentions, and then we'll, once I get into the thanks, kick it All off right. there. So... Our other episodes that are relevant to this one, we have a Joanna Lannister episode that has a lot more context on this time period and on her. We focus in on, like, she didn't get to play much of a role in this episode because we were not sure where she was. She was at court for a lot of it anyway. But that would that's definitely a related topic that um, if you're wanting to stay in Lannister land, that would be a good place to go. Summer Hall episodes, we mention those periodically because they come up so much. Certainly relevant here just a little bit. Duskendale, the Defiance of Duskendale episode involves Tywin and Ares and Barristan, of course, and a lot of other stuff. So that's pretty on point. Talks about how Tywin deals with the sort of situations when he's the hand rather than fully in charge. Nine Penny Kings episodes. I mentioned those, of course. That's a, a big long war. It's sort of the Sixth Blackfire Rebellion. It has a different name, but that's effectively what it is. And I also want to shout out our podcast of surprise. It's our Witcher podcast. And the reason I bring that up is that in a recent episode, we talked about the name Reynard as a historical notation it's a long-running influence reynard the fox goes back to medieval times disney's had a lot of foxes sword of the stone things like that well it in the witcher verse there's a lot of homages to different fairy tales and legends and uh, we had taught we had cause to discuss the full origins of reynard the fox and associated legends uh he's associated with cunning which is why george made reynard cunning here george was in on the joke here and on the Easter egg or whatever you want to call it. So the podcast of surprise, the episode is a sort of destiny. If you want more on Reynard and associated legends. Thanks to our patrons for keeping the lights on. We really appreciate your support. That also goes for anchor supporters and anyone who donates through our website or supports us through one of the other means that you can find at historyofwesteros.com. All the slew of options are there. Go check it out if you're so feeling it. And... Thanks to Ashea for running so much over there in the corner, reading the quotes, keeping the chat managed, doing all the technical stuff. Thanks to Nina for her support and additional writing assistance. Thanks as well to uh, Michael Clarfeld uh, over at Claridox.te, Joey and Jesse for the music assistance. Ben Janier is our quality sound guy. 
Thanks to our mods over on Facebook, everyone who joins us on Discord or anywhere else. We thank you as well. Facebook, you guys are great. And enjoy my singing as we drift away. Valar Reredus. Now the rains we pour in.